Hi, everyone. I'm Courtney, and I'm here. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about us uh, at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about um, any kind of questions that you have about media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today is kind of a Q&A about 3D. There's a couple of us that have done a fair bit of 3D, and and we'll have a little discussion about it, about ways to get started and the basics that you want to be thinking about. Uh, if you have questions, go ahead and throw those in. So if you're always wondering, like, how should I get started? Or what does this mean? Or what is a vertice? Or what is a keyframe? Or any of those things, um, you know, go ahead and throw those in uh, and uh, we will answer them. Um, and and talk through them and so um, so anyway so that's that's for the second hour there um, and uh, for the first hour we're going to go ahead and jump into the questions uh, a reminder that you can ask questions inside of Makana or you can ask them uh, using uh, askofficehours.global it's a little QR code right there so askofficehours.global you can go there and ask the questions any time of the day so if you think of them in the middle of the afternoon or in the middle of the night or in the evening or whatever. Anytime you're seeing this video, because a lot of you don't actually watch live, I don't. I'm not holding it against you, but I'm just saying that if you're not watching it live, you can ask the. You can still participate in the show by asking the questions right, 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 right there, um, and uh, and and uh, ask office hours global. All right, let's go ahead and jump into those questions, Mitch. What do we have? All right, let's kick it off with C.J. Covell from Downeytown, Pennsylvania. Mr. Davis, what's the report from our friends at Final Cut? Hey there. Uh, so I am in Cupertino, California, sitting in a quiet hotel room here for a little bit before I go back over there. Uh, I'm at the Creative Summit, which is kind of the final cut gathering of the tribes. Everybody uh, who I used to see for all the years we were doing it before COVID seems to be back. It's a great old home week, and we're seeing a lot of people that I've missed dearly, particularly the international people. People are coming in from all over. Alex Golner's here from London. Uh, there's a big team from Australia, Lee Herbert's here, and uh, as is Ian, uh, Ian uh, who wrote the Final Cut book. And we've got just, it, it's great. Most of this is old home week for me. I know most of the stuff they're talking about on the show, but I will give you a brief tour. I'm going to do a share screen here. I took a couple of Photos. I can't show you the stuff from inside Apple Park. That's still kind of embargoed. But hopefully you are seeing my screen now. Can somebody confirm that to you? We're not seeing the screen. Okay. You're it says you're screen. starting. It says you started screen sharing, but we don't see any actual image. Oh, that's yet. interesting. Stop share and let's try it again and see if I can. You've got to kick it a couple times. Yeah. Share the iPhone. Your screen is paused. There we go. Yep, we see there we go. So um, opening keynote, Justine Erzarek from uh, iJustine. Fabulous opening keynote. She talked for an hour and a half, handled a lot of audience questions. That's Nick Caruz, who's the uh, kind of the guy who's doing this stuff this year. Uh, this was the opening day, so we're in the keynote. Interesting, I brought this up because you can see that the whole first section after that was iPad production and editing. They spent a lot of time, and the focus this year is on what they've done with iPad OS and Final Cut for iPad OS. Um, these are some of the sessions, and of course, the next thing we did after the morning sessions was take the bus to Apple Park which is a beautiful facility. We went in and had the presentation from the Apple team and the rest of that. Uh, let's get past a couple of more quick pictures. There's Nick, uh, just people in here. I wanted to get to the iOS uh, presentation because it was really interesting. Um, 
the capability you can tell that the development team is spending a lot of time on this and this is a particular youtube guy who he's now gotten rid of all of his other computers and he does his youtube very successful uh presentations entirely off of his iphone so in terms of iphone is there iPad. a ipad i'm sorry you're right yeah. um this is uh final cut pro for ipad they're very specific about that so um without being able to go through all the apple photos that i have after that because somebody will probably get mad at me for doing it well i can i can do one more so uh we all this is as close as I can get you to it, which is just the monument sign out in front of uh, where we snuck into the giant spaceship. And so uh, big, long line of people. Apple security is Apple security is it always is. They're checking people at everything. Oh, and that's the little building. Free... That's the little building right across from the store. Right, yeah, yeah. exactly. It's right next to the store, and that is kind of one of the main gate entrances. Mm -hmm. They have another little glassed-in facility there, where I think groups who are going to be allowed inside Apple Park. I think that's the only get to do what they do. to the to the building. Yeah. yeah, it could could well be. So let's see what have they what do they talk about? They talked about a few things. Uh, we're going to do something on Thursday. We're gonna I'm going to go in more depth, and I'll have time to kind of digest all my notes uh we all joke because one of the first things they announced and there was a scrolling timeline and they've done that but they did it in an unusual and interesting way i thought that was really actually more it, it's kind of apple like they didn't just scroll the timeline they did some more stuff uh collapse to connected clips too is a thing if you're a final cut editor you understand what that means but but it's one of those things where I was sitting there thinking, ah, that's why they didn't do it immediately. They really wanted to think about it. I know it's taken a lot of time to get there, but in Final Cut parlance, you can do a connected clip, which is an attached kind of secondary storyline on top of your first storyline. And one of the things they brought up that I never considered is we have these things in Final Cut called gap clips. It represents kind of like what on an old traditional timeline, a just blank space was. And yet it is a thing. And when you think about it, if you have a connected storyline on top of your main storyline and you want to collapse it down to essentially flatten your timeline, the question is, what happens to those gap clips? Because they're not really black. And so they had to think that through. So they figured out a way to collapse that without having the gap clips affect what's beneath it. And so it's just these little tiny interface touches that their engineers put a lot of time into figuring out how will people want to use this feature and not just say, okay, the easiest thing is just collapse it and all of your gaps in your secondary storyline will become gaps in your primary storyline, which is not what most people want. Can you work around it? Yeah, but it's it's that kind of detail that we were hearing about Um uh, object tracking and a bunch of other stuff has migrated into Final Cut. So we'll talk about everything, the the more in-depth look at the program and the rest of that on the Thursday show. That's great. So nothing nothing groundbreaking for the the um uh for the desktop app, but but a lot of a lot of work on the iPad app. Yeah, probably the biggest message I took away is that they're very serious about Final Cut for iPad and it is a it's going to be developed the, the feeling I got was that it's going to be developed in parallel with Final Cut so that people who are mobile areas they talked a lot about social influencers and things like that having an easy to use rig on the road and then be able to integrate that into your Final Cut main productions super easily when you get back so yeah. 
Yeah, I think that I think that Apple, uh, and I'll let Chris jump in here in a second, but but I, I think that Apple really saw how many influencers were using Final Cut because it was fast. They don't get paid by the hour, <laughs> you know. Then they 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 have stuff that needs to get out, and and I think that they're they're definitely focusing some energy there. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Alec, uh, Bill, you mentioned the the tracker. The tracker's been around for a year and a half. They said it's an enhanced tracker. Can you elaborate on what the enhancements are? Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, I was deep in a conversation, uh, whispered conversation to the audience when that, but they have improved uh, some of how it works. I will study up on that and make sure that I have a a full report for you on Thursday. And you mentioned the gap clips. Were you... at one point, I thought you were talking about the gap clips in the primary storyline, the track one, if you will. And yeah. then then I heard you say something about the gap clips in the secondary storyline. Yeah, that was interesting. Uh, uh, Bill Davis, well, the other Bill Davis, who was on the team. It's very confusing because they're not, you guys are not related. We're not. <laughs> I, I got to, I kid you not, for years, I thought, I mean, up until fairly recently, I thought that Bill, the two of them were, were related. And, and and suddenly I realized, like, how do you Wait, have two they people? Were bro- both brothers named Daryl? Like, no, Bill I thought, Bill? I thought that Brother Bill, Darryl, I, thought, right. I thought young Bill, I thought, well, Bill Davis in, at Apple is a lot younger than Bill Davis in our show. And so I thought it was father and son, you know, and, and I thought that, so I had this whole like thing in my head about how this all worked. And I was like, well, it makes sense. I mean, Bill's really into Final Cut and his son, and it all, it all, it all worked until I talked to Bill. I said, Hey, can I'm trying to, anyway, and, and the Idels, like, the Idelsons like, already have this covered, so I don't have to mess with it. So no, Bill and yeah, I, I, yeah. I met him years ago, and we we joke yeah. about it and laugh about it that that we're messing up the space time continuum yeah. when we're in the same room. Have two people things. that are really into Final Cut be not related to each other. It's just, it's just yeah, it's fun. Anyway, in terms of the gap clip thing, Chris, yeah, yeah. let me just answer it. That was really interesting. I guess it took a lot of engineering thinking about in the magnetic timeline world to take a secondary storyline that has gap clips and push it down into a primary storyline that potentially also has gap clips. So you can imagine the kind of logic conundrum of that. And what they ended up doing is they make it so, they coded it so that if you have gaps in a secondary and you push it, only the clips get pushed into the primary. So you don't get unwanted gaps in the primary. And this collapse trick, <clears throat> Excuse me. Is that something that can be uncollapsed as well? Yeah, it, it was real interesting. Um, yes, and um, it has also lots of impacts on audio because you can think that there'll be audio in both of those. So imagine rolls and a whole bunch of things like that that could theoretically impact be impacted by the editor's intent to merge things. So yes, there's there's it's an interesting thing. And how is this different than, you know what? Thursday. Yeah, we have plenty of time on Thursday. We'll talk about it. Next question. Thanks. Before we go to that, I just want to remind everybody, Thursday, Bill is going to be talking about it, really breaking it all down for us. And this is just kind of an informal, like telling us what he saw. Um, and uh, so Thursday, we'll, we'll break it all down and have your questions. So watch what other things that are coming out. This is, uh, this is happening yesterday and today. Um, and, uh, and then on Thursday, Bill will join us and give us a full report in the second hour of what, what is a little, little bit of a preview. So thanks, Bill, so much for taking a little bit of time with us. No and, problem. Uh, I'm going to the show. I'll see you guys okay. later. <laughs> Have fun. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> All right. Next question. All right. Thank you, Bill. Uh, next question in from David Brady in New York, New York. Wine, crossover, parallels, or fusion? What's the panel's favorite way of running Windows apps on Apple Silicon? 
Courtney? Well, I can't speak to running Windows apps on Apple Silicon, but I did run Windows apps for years on the Intel version of, of the Macs, and they worked quite well. I used uh, 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 I used Parallels at first and then VR Fusion later, and Boot Camp was my favorite because uh, all my Windows apps would run at full speed uh, on, uh, on the Mac uh, hardware uh, with Intel stuff, but I... The problem is when they went to Apple Silicon for the longest time, they didn't. Have, they still probably still don't have Boot Camp, uh, since it's uh, you would have to run Windows for ARM on it. And the problem with Windows for ARM for me is none of the software that I've custom written over the last thirty years will run on Windows for ARM, so I haven't tried it out. Yeah, the um, uh, the one that I've used for the long, I haven't needed it for a while. Generally, I will admit when I need a PC, I just buy a PC. I don't run PC. I don't run. Windows on a Mac anymore. Um, usually, I just I just get get something that's built for it. But uh, when we've had to do it in the over the last decade or more, it's been Parallels. Parallels is the one that we found that was the most stable. We got the most performance out of the machine. I have not tested it with the M1 specifically because, as a, again, I kind of just kind of went into a mode of when I need a PC because usually when I'm when I'm buying a PC, I either want something less expensive than a Mac Mini. Or I want something that can do game, you know, game level graphics. So I, I'm putting some kind of NVIDIA board in, and I don't really do anything with Windows and in between that. <laughs> so so it's either a cheap, you know, a cheap little box like uh, like this little melee that that Courtney got me onto, um, or it is a beefy game machine that has you know that I'm doing gra- some kind of graphics with. Uh, next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, has a question. I have an OWC T3 dock that is no longer connecting to my M2 MacBook Pro on any port after repeated power outages last night. Any way to restore it, or is it dead? Uh, you know, before I decided it was dead or not, I mean, when you have that kind of issue, there's not really a lot of ways to de-exit it other than to call OWC. So I would, I would, call, I would tell them what happened and, and walk through it, and they'll tell you whether it... I mean, if it's not... If you had repeated, the first thing to do with power outages um, is to unplug everything, you know, from the wall. Like if you're having lightning, I'm assuming that you had power outages that were connected to lightning, uh, you know, get things off the wall um, because that's what, it's, it's most likely if it's not coming up, it's the power supply. Power supply got too much irregular uh, voltage and now it's not working. Um, and that's where we see the, that kind of failure the most often. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, if that's the dock, if I remember correctly, where power goes through it, you plug your power, your <clears throat> uh, wall wart into the dock, and then the dock into the into the Mac. Uh, so it powers, sends power through the dock into the Mac and charges the Mac through the dock. It could have blown the uh, the small chip that controls power and handshaking inside the dock uh, when the power supply went out. Uh, could be the OWC. If your power supply works correctly directly into the end of the Mac and charges it uh, without the dock in the way, then you know your power supply is still good and your input, uh, your uh, USB-C port in the Mac has not been blown. So try that first and then if that works but it doesn't work when running it through the T3 dock, then it's probably the dock. Good, Chris. Yeah, Andy, I'm totally curious. You said power outages. Alex mentioned lightning. Did you have lightning? Also, the follow-up question I would have is, what kind of uh, power protection do you have? Do you have a UPS? Do you have a, a like a proper surge protector? Um, I know, I, you know, we don't have the same sort of 
thunderstorms like uh, in many parts of the country. So, I know, for example, like right now, I'm just plugging into the wall. I don't have anything I should. It's down in the garage. I have to go get it and set it up. Maybe I'll do that after the show today. But I'd be curious what kind of protection you uh, had that maybe didn't do its job. Yeah, and, and I definitely, um, for me, I have a UPS uh, that is running all of my computer uh, stuff. Um, and some of my monitors, I don't run all my monitors with it. Some of the main monitors are, that are that I need to interact with the computers. And the reason for that is so I can shut things down if I need to. Um, and so, I, but I'm not burning up more time. I, I get by more time by not having the monitors on. Um, the second one, I have another UPS that's just connected to my internet. So my router and my uh, my wireless and everything else is all connected to one uh, one that UPS that fifteen hundred will last for about six to eight hours. You know, so it 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 gives me a long time to still have internet. Um, generally, the internet actually a lot of people don't know this, but the internet has its own back. I mean, a lot of the internet systems all have their own backups. So if Comcast or AT&T is not going to go down typically during a, during a, uh, because they're delivering you phone with it, which is, means that they have to have all these subsystems to, to um, support it. So, so the, um, uh, so the, so I, you know, that, that's how I split that out. Uh, my lights are typically not connected to a, cause they burn up too much, they'll burn up too much time. Um, they're connected to a um, a controller that I can turn on and off. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, with my watch, but but I don't have. But they're not they're not on a power surge. But you do. These are I typically buy the same one because I it's I don't try to think about it. I get the APS fifteen hundred uh, uh, VA uh, system. It's got a battery that you can remove. Like that's the smallest one I think that you can get that has a battery that you can pull out of it. And um, so I that's why I I use that one specifically. It's just that I can change the batteries out without buying a whole new. You know, every couple of years, you can pull it out and, and replace it. Um, it's a little less expensive. And and, uh, and when you travel with it, the big thing is you can spin the battery. And you can actually, you're allowed to check it. We've checked them. You just don't take them to Europe because they only, they're only 120 volts. Uh, go ahead, Chris. So, Alex, I'm curious. You're a very detail-oriented person. When you started, you know, figuring out how are you going to wire your, your studio, and I know you take it apart all the time, do you, like, actually, like, make a list of these things must be on UPS, these things do not, or is it literally like as you're plugging in, go ah, that one's okay. Boom, plug it into the non-UPS. Yeah. So what? A little bit of both. Um, so so generally, uh, before I do a rebuild, I, I do I rebuild my system here about every three months. So I I'm right at the very end of it right now, and it's not quite like timed with the, with the years. So um, anyway, just because the first one was like whatever, and and then I did it. The winter setup. But yeah. So so I'm about to rebuild it. What happens generally I, when I say about every three months, I get to a, so when I first do it before I tear it apart, I'm terrified that I won't be able to put it back together because there's so much stuff going on here. So I sit down on a Saturday afternoon typically, and I'll build a wiring diagram. So I this is where all my power is going. This is where my internet is going, this is where my, or my IP is going, this is where my audio video, and I kind of draw it all out in OmniGraffle, that's what I use, because I've been using it for, I don't know, forever. And so I build that all out of what that looks like. And then what makes that easier is, um, I don't really think about it while I'm building it. I just look at, okay, what do I have to plug into here, 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 here? And so I think about all of it while I'm looking at paper, or not paper, but an iPad. Uh, I look at it all, and I think about it, but I do all the thinking then. Then I play some you know, some music in my, in my headphones. And I just build the whole thing without thinking about any of it. Like I just, I just kind of, you know, just roll everything into the system, just looking at the drawing. It makes it so much easier, especially I don't have a router in this one. I only have a, this eight by eight matrix for HDMI, but my home system doesn't have an SDI router. 
you really, when you draw it out, it makes it so much easier to, to build out a router when you're not thinking about it. <laughs> like you're just, you know, I'm plugging this cable in and, and then in, with SDI, my cables are um, color, you know, all the ends are color coded and all the cables are color coded. So between the two, I've got a lot of options to, you know, so then I just go, oh, I'm taking the blue gray cable and the, and the red, you know, whatever, and I'm, I'm pull, you know, plugging them all in. And so it, it all, it's all pretty mechanical at that point. Um, but then what happens is that over the next couple of months, I keep on adding things and testing things and I add things like this little board to it and everything else and it becomes a slow, it, it starts off so clean and so nice and then it just turns into this hive of, of cables that are just like running because I pulled this one out and I put that one in and I've been, you know, so it's time. <laughs> it's time for my for my system right now to get to get rebuilt and then it'll just happen again and and I, that's that's okay. Like what I don't want to do is have it like I can't change anything because that's what I did. Like I like you, you want to refresh it, but I like being able to just kind of just grab things as needed. Um, next question. Next one in from Eduardo Augustine at Panama City, Panama. Eduardo asks, my fly kit's brain is a Mac mini Intel i5 2014 with Mac OS Catalina. Considering upgrading to Mac OS Monterey, would it affect my workflow? A10 mini extreme ISO, uh, Wacom 1, I guess, OBS and companion. Yeah, so the, the big change uh, there was the jump from Mojave to Catalina. I believe Catalina was after Mojave, if I remember correctly. And there was a jump out of whatever was the the jump out of Mojave, which was was really painful. There was a bunch of bunch of um, libraries that were changed, and that's why a bunch of apps got stuck there for a long time. Um, but the uh, but but I think I don't think you're going to find any major. I don't remember any major change between Catalina and Monterey. Like I don't remember anything like oh you can't move up because of that. It was it was really the 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 update before that that was much more uh, sensitive as I remember. I mean there was a lot of problems with Monterey when it first came out, um, but but I think most of those have been hammered out by now. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, biggest problem I had with that, and I still have it on my cheese grater, uh, was going to metal. Um, it affected all my graphics card. Yeah. NVIDIA went away. Was it Catalina to Monterey, or was it... Uh, Monterey Oh, it was Catalina. Monterey. Okay. Oh, was it Monterey to Catalina? No, I think it's the other way around. Yeah, no, it, it started in Monterey, and uh, Catalina just completely froze the system for Adobe, so I'm stuck. Right. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I, you know, I saw something uh, on YouTube the other day. If you really want to live dangerously, you could upgrade to Ventura. Uh, the latest version. Uh, I don't know if you can do a 2014 to a 2014 i5 to Ventura. Maybe not. I think it's too old. 14 uh, from 16. Here's here's a uh, here's a chart of compatible with this software that will uh, install Ventura with uh, OpenCore Legacy. It's a patcher, and it says 2015 to 2018 uh, 12 inch MacBooks. So there's the list of the ones. Uh, that it can up can work with maybe not well it says 2013 2012 mac mini so maybe <laughs> there's lots there's tons of videos on youtube on using this uh, software open core legacy patcher to run ventura on legacy hardware so take a I, look at that and see if you want to live dangerously yeah i would not do that in a production in a production computer Cordy's just he's just Right, taking you down the primrose path. Anyway, so so the um, uh, no, I would I would not I would not do that. Um, the uh, uh, yeah. So the big the big shift that we had the most trouble with was going from Mojave to Catalina. As as Mitchell said, there might have been some issues between Catalina and uh, Monterey. Um, but uh, I would highly recommend if you're running an Intel i5 2014 is to think about 
a way to raise enough money to get the lowest the lowest end M1 or M2 or M3, whatever Mac mini, you will find that it is, uh, I'm going to guess given on the last, the last data, probably 10 or 20 times faster. Like not, not like a little faster, but it is, it's an entirely different world. From 2014, it's an entirely different world. I still have 2014 machines that I'm using, but they are like showing web pages. You know, like they're just like they're barely doing anything at this point. So I would, I would, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I would really think about it if you're using it in production to think about trying to figure that out. I know that you may not, that might be, might not be an option for you, but it's really, I mean, it's a dramatic difference. Go ahead, uh, Mitchell. Uh, surprisingly, even with uh, using Catalina on my cheese grater, I can still edit in Premiere Pro just fine. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Alex, I want to, I want to compliment you. That was very well done what you just did there. You, you encouraged Ed, Eduardo to get a new computer with the least amount of guilt and shame I've ever seen you do. It was polite. It was well, fiscally sensitive. That was well done. This, I like this new Alex. Well done. You know. Uh, next question. Next one in from Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. Has anyone used BitFocus Companion and a Stream Deck to control DMX fixtures? I canceled my Luminaire subscription as I need to slim down the multitude of subscriptions that I have. Good, Jeff. Well, there's there's multiple ways to approach this, but actually the BitFocus Companion can actually speak ArtNet, uh, or it talks to a node, So, or you could talk to a console. Uh, so if you have one of these... Uh, grandma threes laying around you know they're like 80 grand if you have one of those you could put it in and then have your you know, stream deck talk to it uh then the other option if you wanted to go a little bit cheaper than 80 grand is you could do a uh, dmx king or an intech or any of these other art nodes that are artnet and it's just a node that just sits on the network and spits out dmx and then you just have to link it between bitfocus and that i've used qlab to do the same thing uh, sending out, and then I use the BitFocus companion to call QLab queues. So there's there's a bunch of different ways. They, but Luminaire, yeah, once it went to subscription, I'm still locked in on the very first version on one of my iPads. So I just keep that one iPad hopefully holding holding together for a while. Next question. Next one in from Guy Cochran in Seattle. Is global shutter on full-frame mirrorless now a reality? And there's a link to a Sony rumor site. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, well, it uh, pairs it, it. It will be on the rumor site. It shows you can now, uh, uh, here's a picture of the A9 III, uh, and it looks at some of those uh, improvements, 120 frames per second with uh, autofocus and AE blackout-free shooting, one eight. 80,000th of a second minimum shutter speed. Wow, with flash systems. Uh, and improved workflow support. Apparently, you can now pre-order it at B&H Photo, and they're going to have some holiday deals coming up at B&H Photo, Adorama, and Amazon. So get your pre-orders in. I don't know when it's going to ship. I don't know. That's on rumor site. So keep your fingers crossed. We don't know how much it's going to cost unless Mitchell All the monies. It's going to cost all the monies. All right, go ahead, Mitchell. I am a Sony fanboy, I admit it. Um, there is a disturbance in the force because I think something weird is going on here. Um, it is a rumor site. It is a rumored uh, photograph, perhaps. Um, Sony wouldn't do a, a, a video-centric camera and name it Alpha something, like Alpha 9 III, like that is. I think they more likely would name it an FX something. 
because of the global shutter being very important. But that uh, A9 has an electronic viewfinder, and it seems to be more um, still camera-centric, which a global shutter can contribute to, but it's not as important as it is to video. And it's interesting, this is, according to the rumor, this is a stacked CMOS sen sensor, so it could, you know, that's going to improve the sharpness, I think. Um, so, uh, so we'll see how that, how that looks. Um, it appears that, that Sony is, a, is planning a, um, oh, the, the 59.9, the rumor is $5,998 US uh, for this camera. Um, and so, but it is, you know, I think that the FX series, other than the FX3, is really looking at a form factor of, I'm a film camera, I'm a little box, you know, and I think that the A7s oftentimes are right. You can still use this as a camera, really. <laughs> so um, what's interesting is, is that there's this this split that you see because the other, some of the other alpha ch um, cameras are 60 megapixels or 61 megapixels or 62 megapixels. And this one's sticking with the 24, it appears, um, at full frame. So it, it is, it feels like it's a little bit more towards the, video camera than the, you know, so it's, it's a very fascinating thing that Sony makes buying cameras very complicated. I feel like we, there has to, there should be actually a um, bachelor's degree or possibly a master's degree where you have to like write a whole thesis about which camera you should buy from Sony because they make so many of them and the differences are so odd. Like it's just not, it's, it's like the most odd, like I love Sony. I'm using a Sony camera. I, I've used Sony cameras for a long time. So it's, I'm not saying that I, you know, but but it's very complicated to figure out um, which camera to get and why because they just build them and they all intermingle them. It's not connected by price. It's not connected by size or form factor. It's all like just all over the place. Uh, anyway, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, uh, if you if you don't like the Sony camera you have today, chances are in a few months there'll be a different model. Um, and it'll be slightly I'm different, of, and it'll have a, a sl some yeah. of the features you can't wait for, but it'll take away other features that you were using. Yeah, every day. I, I think what I think what it is, it's an FX three with a global shutter in it. It does look like it, it's a bit like that. So um, so anyway, it's going to be really interesting to see. Uh, again, the rumor is I believe that the that the announcement is happening right after our show. So I think it's I think the announcement is uh, supposed to the um, the event or whatever they're going to whatever they're going to do the video that they're going to release on live is um, I think supposed to happen at nine a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Go ahead, Courtney. And I wouldn't trust the pictures we showed because I found this one. Uh, it looks kind of like a PlayStation <laughs> controller mock-up. So, uh, uh, yeah, I don't think it's going to look like that. But, hey, you can dream, can't you? <laughs> they can walk into play, into position like, Woo -doo 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 -doo. it's a new, new AI. Uh, yeah. Next question. Next question from Andre Dole in Berlin. I've got an upcoming digital event with a very tight budget for an internet access. I'd like to get a backup to my fiber line. What's a good device to rent or buy for getting dual WAN? As backup, I have a Starlink and an LTE router handy. Thoughts? I'll go ahead, Jeff. Our go-to right now is, without a doubt, the Max BR2 from Peplink. It, yeah. It's got two WAN inputs, or you can actually add virtual inputs. It could be more. Uh, they have a profile for using with Starlink now. So our Starlink's plug into it, and you can actually eliminate this silly little white box that's in the middle of all your production from Starlink. So you can bypass that directly uh, with the right little adapters and, and uh, a couple power boxes that you have to buy. But uh, we did that, and it's just, it's been really amazing. Um, it's, with two of the Starlinks, you can use the Speed Fusion and actually give you some real redundancy, but it's still not the same as if you really have something that counts. And when I say it counts, you're getting paid for it, and you really need to have 
uh, a reliable source of internet. Uh, if it's not just internet, you're streaming out, just go live view, Avi West, High Vision, something that TVU, something that has truly bonding just the video signal and sending that out instead of trying to build a redundant. Now, if you're ingesting stuff, like if you're using Zoom to come back to do remote people, um, that's that's a little bit different. You do need just general internet at that point. But if you need to get a reliable signal, then I, my first step is live view without a doubt. Yeah, 100%. Next question. And the previous question was a QR code question, as is this one from Joe Phillips in Murphy, North Carolina. I need a budget-conscious inline 4K30 HDMI capture device to feed 1080p60 USB 3.0 into an M1 MacBook Pro. It will be used to capture a PC monitor for super sourcing into Zoom. Go ahead, Mitchell. I'm hoping that someday I'll be able to take this Condor Blue out of its uh, bag. It is still totally sealed, and I don't think it's 4K, but... Give me a reason to get this out of here. I have one right here. Is this the one, the one you have in your bag? It's out, out of the bag. Yeah, yeah. I use this one. What I'm primarily using this one for actually is HDMI into my iPad. So that's the because it, it'll it'll uh, it works quite nicely for that. Uh, go ahead, Jeff. Magewell would be my go-to. There's budget conscious, and then there's I want it to work. So Magewell is where I would start. Yeah, um, I would. I would. I would definitely. Um, I. I wouldn't, I don't, I don't trust the color on this guy. Um, so, so that's the issue that I have with it. Um, I think it's crushing blacks the same way that um, other things are crushing blacks. Um, the uh, Magewell or, um, well, Magewell is the one that I would probably get if I was left to that, uh, you know, for that, because the, the other one that I would avoid, um, we've had a lot of problems with the Elgato 4K um, overheating. Um, and so if you're going to do short things, it's fine. But as soon as you decide you want to do something for an hour, we've, an uh, hour, hour and a half seems to be the outer edge of that Elgato before it just, and it just turns off. Like it doesn't warn you. It just like suddenly there's no video. And then you pull it out, put it back in, and it will run for another 10 minutes and then it'll turn off again. So uh, I would stay away from the Elgato um, one if you're going to do anything long form. Uh, but the mage walls are great. Um, next question. Vic Hernandez in Springfield, Missouri. Ever listen to the remotes leave it? It amazes me. Any word on a new release? I don't think we have anyone here from the remotes on here, but definitely ask when you see some of the folks that are on remotes. I would love to see another one. I believe it was amazing. And um, they've, there's a bunch of them that if you look if you look back there and um, they've, they've done some incredible work. And I think the problem is COVID ended and they had more time. <laughs> they went back to it and building these building those songs is amazing. It's also an amazing amount of work. And I know they have other ones that are kind of in the hopper, but I don't know where they are in production. So uh, stay tuned. We'll see if we can get an update for the, for you. Uh, quick reminder, of course, that you can ask questions throughout the hour. Um, you can uh, you can use ask in McConnell. Make sure to vote on questions. Voting is really important because it does give give us a sense of what order you'd like us to address your questions. Um, and so uh, so uh, throw those questions into McConnell, or you can use the QR code. Uh, you can go to askofficehours dot global that's askofficehours.global you can do that 24 7 so you can um you can actually ask that anytime but right now is good as well um and uh, we'll we'll filter it into the system uh next question speaking of qr code here's one from b taylor in washington what's the best way to get youtube live stream audio to a captioner without a proper audio hybrid setup without introducing additional audio delay so um if you're trying to, okay, so I'm, I'm assuming that what you're asking for is you want to caption into YouTube. Now, I don't, do they still support the HTTP input? I actually don't know if they do or not. 
Um, there was an HTTP input um, that, that, that did that. What we did in mass was using things like Zoom or Skype to send them the audio back. Now, there's a couple different ways to do it. If you're using hardware, so if you have, a, if you have an EEG 492, for instance, or 491, what you can do is you can, um, there's a thing called ICAP. And so anybody who's a caption, just about anybody who's in a capture will understand what ICAP is. And what happens is, is when they attach to ICAP on their end, they hear the audio as it hits your, um, your the, uh, uh, EEG 492 or 491 are, the, these are caption encoders. So what they do is they, they take the videos, the raw video signal that you're, that you're um, working with and they run it into, um, uh, they, they add captioning to line 21, the VANC data, they add that to it and then that goes out and that will go to your encoder and if your encoder will manage that, um, basically it will stream into YouTube. YouTube knows what to do with it, uh, with that data and it shows up on the bottom of the screen. Um, there, are, there are a couple idiosyncrasies to know about that. One is that the captioner decides where that, you can actually, the text can appear in a couple different places. <laughs> the captioner setup it affects that. So you have to be kind of careful of that. Um, it doesn't always end up at the bottom. Um, but the other thing is, is that, um, so the, what happens is that you take that, the captioner gets into ICAP, they sit there and they can hear the audio, they type, it goes back into the encoder automatically over the internet and is attached to that to that line 21 bank data and goes out to, to YouTube. That is the most standard way to do it. Now, there's other ways to do it where you have pass-throughs. AI Media, who bought EEG, has a pass-through where you're streaming, through, you're streaming your RTMP through AI Media and then they have captioners and those captioners are using either, they could be using a stenographer setup, which is what, e, what, what the caption, what the EEG is used to, or they do something called respeaking, um, which is a respeaking is the training time is a lot less on a respeak. So they have a lot more respeakers. And so what respeaking does is someone's literally listening to your show and then saying it again, but clearly in a controlled environment with a good microphone. And the AI then is able to turn that back in. And 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 then finally, there's AI, you know, so and there's a couple different um, EEG slash AI media have their own AI solution. So that ICAP, for instance, that I just talked about that can be attached to a person typing away can also be attached to um, an AI Lexi is the is the AI system that EEG uses. And so um, so you can use that in hardware, you can pass your RTMP through them to do that. And then again, I haven't done it. I haven't done the the, the original way to do this with YouTube was an HTTP input. So what you would do is you have there are two major encoders that are used by stenographers. One's called um, ProCap and the other one's called Clips. And you can point them towards something called stream stream text, and stream text will uh, take it. And we use that a lot for cart. You know, to, cart is we put it up on the screens that are there. But you can point that towards an HTTP input from YouTube, um, and that will YouTube will take the HTTP input and and put it in, a, in as captions. The cool thing about that is that you can. Um, uh, if you have two different captioners, they can hand off because they just have the same. One just stops typing and the other one starts typing. If you, they both type at the same time, you'll end up with a uh, medical event being jammed into your uh, political event <laughs> and watching captions for about heart problems uh, appearing in a, in, a, in a political event is not good. So anyway, so the um, so anyway the uh, so those are the, those are some of the idiosyncrasies with the captions. The uh, and you know a, a lot of times these are you know a lot of the AI stuff starting to kind of um, uh, pick up, but that's the, you know especially if you're doing an audio hybrid. Um, if if you if what you mean is hybrid, 
both in the room and out of the room, the thing to think about is is how you might use stream text to deliver to both YouTube as HTTP or into that or and also into cart. Um, there are other pieces of hardware that will do the um, cart stuff from EEG as well, which we've used. And they're nice because you can figure out where you want to put them and all these other things. Anyway, so that there, I, over, I think I over answered that question very effectively. So um, anyway, but uh, yes, I have had <laughs> to spend a lot of time working on that. Uh, next question. Next question coming to us from Douglas Carmichael. I saw a video of a Nashville vocal session where the singers only had one side of their headphones on their ears. What's going on? I go, Jeff. It's uh, <laughs> as simple as question is uh, they want to hear people out of the other ear. Uh, you notice I only have one in it. I don't want somebody sneaking up on me. And whenever I have both my ears in, that's what happens. And I'm they scare me. And I don't like to be scared. And that's part of it if they're isolated. But really in singers, it's all about hearing the other singers. They don't trust their audio mix. So they don't trust the monitor guy to give them what they're supposed to be hearing. So it's really a trust issue. So the artists themselves don't trust the monitor guy. The monitor guy just gives them what they say they want, but they don't always know what they want. So they open up an ear so they can hear the other artists so they can sing harmonies and do whatever they need to do. And just some part of that is people can't isolate to having both ears in. And so they have a problem with that and spatial awareness. And so they uh, basically pull an ear out. It happens all the time. I go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, Jeff, that's true. And there's another reason. It goes way back in that uh, the old days, all they had was one side so you could hear the cues coming from the uh, control room and the other side so you could hear your actual voice as you were speaking. And any vocal artist would prefer to hear their, vo uh, their voice naturally or by doing the old Gary Owens thing so they can hear it uh, as a feedback measure. But uh, there's something about hearing your actual voice over a uh, headphone amplified voice that sometimes is very reassuring. So I can tell you that sometimes I'll do voiceover work with one side on and one side off, and it, uh, it seems to help. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and in the video that it was pointed to, you can see that the singers, several of the singers have their hand over their ear that has the headphone off of it. So they're controlling the balance of their voice to the other's voices, and this is a choir, so they're all harmonizing in four-part harmony. Uh, just don't stop believing here in this. And so uh, they can control then the balance between hearing their own voice back by cupping their hand over their ear and hearing the other singers to harmonize with them in real time. And usually the only thing that's coming over the headphones is, um, you know, so in the room itself, there's no open speakers with the, the track that they're singing over. So they hear the track that they're singing over through their headphone ear so that they stay in sync with that. And they hear the other singers prominently through their open ear so that they can harmonize. Go ahead, Chris. Having mixed a fair amount of uh, vocal in-ear monitors, now that's a little bit different than headphones, I find it, I know that when I'm working with people, I work super hard to make sure that they can hear what they need to hear so they don't do the, you know, pull one out. And the reason for that is what, what often ends up happening, when you have your monitors in both ears, you can lower the volume. When you pull one out, quite often they'll reach down to their belt pack and they crank up the other one. And it's really bad for your hearing. It's really bad for your hearing. Because what you're getting now is you're getting an intense sound in one ear and then room sound in the other. So I know that when I see people do that, 
I try to mitigate the problem. I go, why are you doing that? Let's fix this. And, and I really want to build a trust with the artist so that they don't try and like just bypass me because I'm trying to protect people's hearing as well as letting them give the best performance. So um, I, I just see that and I, I cringe. It's like somebody's not doing their job right. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I wanted to point one other thing out. You'll, you'll notice, you know, there are sophisticated monitoring systems where each singer could could adjust their own uh, in-ear monitor balance between the, the track and themselves, et cetera. But in this case, there are several singers singing to a single microphone. So you can't uh, change the balance because everybody's into the same microphone, so you don't have individual control over each individual singer. So that may be why uh, they're using the cup to the ear uh, to modulate, to control their balance between themselves and the other. Yeah. I, I still think that, I mean, it's very rare for an experienced audio engineer and an experienced recording vocalist to have them take their headphones off. Like that, that's just a very, like, I, I'm not saying that there's a, not a good reason for it because I have, I just, ha I've been in a lot of studios and I haven't seen that. Um, when both of them know it, both, when both of them have a lot of flight hours, they put their headphones on and then their headphones are on. Like I don't, I never see them pulling things off or doing anything else. When someone, when one or the other doesn't have a lot of experience, they do all kinds of crazy things. Like, you know, people who come into the studio the first time do a lot of goofy things with their, because they're not comfortable with the system. Um, and, or an engineer doesn't have all the support services and then they're not, then something isn't working. And that happens even at the highest levels. You'll see artists, when artists do this, when they, when they, they'll sit there and they'll go like this, or they'll sing and they'll go like this. That's not them cupping it. They're telling the 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 front. They're telling the engineer like, "Hey, this isn't working." You know, like this isn't working. And then you'll see the ultimate, the the this. I can't hear what's going on. They'll pull the they'll pull their ear out, and that means there's something not working on their mix. And if they get if you get one of these, that means that. Um, <laughs> They're really upset with the, someone, someone's getting fired. You know, like, like, so, you know, like there was a Mariah Carey one that I saw that, that was like a New Year's Eve or whatever. And she, you mm -hmm. could tell like people blamed her for that, but they were, something was very, very wrong with what was going into her ears. And you could tell she was struggling with it and pulling it in and pulling it out because she'll pull it in and pull it out. And that's telling somebody, you can't say it on the show. I mean, sometimes they do when it's really bad. You'll see an artist just stop going, Hey, Hey. Whoever's doing this, I, I need you to fix this thing. And that's when you know that that person will never work on that show that, for that artist again. Like if they call you out on that. But, but what I will say is that I've never seen anybody doing what you're talking about that has, I have seen it. I just haven't seen it where the engineers, you had a really, really good engineer that understood how to build the mix for them. And you had an experienced person that's in it all the time. Um, they, uh, you know, I don't see session artists doing that. Go ahead, uh, Jeff. I think that that's exactly, I mean, we're, we're looking at a video or we're looking at a picture and we don't know the whole situation. It could be as yeah. simple as there's not enough oxes or there's not enough monitor mixes to feed that many people. They may only have four and there's like, oh, hey, we brought 10 people to sing today. And that's the, the engineers going like, well, you're going to share headphones because that's all we have. And yeah. that's it. And it's hard to say off of just a picture. It's, I will say it is like, it's probably one of the most underrated things is specifically the in-ear monitor, the foldbacks, like the in-ear monitor monitor mixing is so important. Yeah. Like and we it's often have, now because we're using in-ears. In-ears are we, extremely dangerous 
versus right. stage monitors. That well, but it's it is because um, like when an artist says they don't want in ears, I usually assume they don't have a lot of experience. <laughs> like I just immediately go, oh, this person doesn't spend a lot of time on stage because, uh, or they're not used to having someone who knows what they're doing mixing their their in ears um, because. When I, um, because when I see, you know, most artists have that, have those, you know, the vast majority and for larger shows, I mean, and I, when I say larger shows, like medium large shows, we have engineers that are only managing the, the, their, their mix. Like literally there is a person dedicated to them that is by the stage and they can sit there and they can look over and go, I need a little bit more of this. I need a little bit more of that. And that happens all through rehearsal and all through, like people are asking, making requests for, I need a little bit more of this. I need a little bit more of that. And the idea is we can give you all the, the creature comforts that you need in that. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I mean, a good monitor mixer is going to be wearing similar buds to, to what the uh, artist is wearing. They're going to be able to solo each performer's mix. And you develop, it's a super intimate relationship that you have with somebody. You're in their ear canal with them. And you should be able to, I, I, I know what this singer likes to hear. I know what this bass player likes to hear. And in some even small acts... They'll have like I, I think I read once that you two had one monitor mixer for Edge and Bono, and one did the drummer and the uh, uh, Adam and Larry. Also, uh, Alex, you mentioned you know the inexperienced person. I heard a really charming story about a woman who was um, brought in to sing on a um, on a worship album. This woman has a beautiful voice, no recording experience. They put her in a booth. They didn't have any way of seeing her. And she started singing. And they were like, oh, it's a beautiful performance. But why does it sound so bad? And they opened the door afterwards. And she had just gotten totally lost in the moment, walked away from the microphone, and was standing in the corner just well, and, singing away. It's well, like, and, sweetie, you got you, you, you got to sing into the microphone. Well, and, and one of the most important things when someone's really, when you're a great vocalist, it's not just being a great vocalist, but someone who understands studio recording. Yeah. They're using that mic like as a as a um, you know as as a DJ who's been doing this for a long time. I use the mic and I need to hear myself. Like like I remember I was talking to somebody and they, I said, "Well, you you need you need side tones so you can hear yourself." And they're like, "Why would why would I want to hear myself?" And I was like, oh. <laughs> "Like you need to hear yourself. Like you cannot do this well if you can't hear yourself. Like you need to hear what you're sounding like in the microphone." Um, in fact, it was it was really overwhelming for me when I put these headsets in because I was using you know standard IFB headsets. I remember that day. Oh my gosh. And Things I didn't realize sensitive. You're like, ah, why is it so loud? Ah, ah. Well, I was hearing all the thing, all the noise I was making in the show. And I was, and, and you guys were listening to that every day. I just wasn't, I wasn't conscious to it of all the little things that I was doing that was there, that was there. And so I, um, and so suddenly I heard it all and I couldn't even think. And so, so then I very quickly changed. I, that's when I got my mic, my, my um, mic mute and got a bunch of other things because I was like, I just need to build the system a little bit more tightly, you know, to make that actually work. But the point is, is that you need to hear yourself. And I will say that there is, we're hopefully, you know, we're, we're working on this partnership with, um, with a studio and we're going to be doing a lot more studio work. And, um, I think it's going to be fun because I think you're going to hear some, you're going to get to watch the interaction between some pros, you know, like super pro, you know, super musicians and you'll get the sense, you know, get a sense of it. And we're going to set it up so that we can do Q and A. <laughs> so you can ask questions about why they're doing what they're doing. But, but I think listening to that and watching it will be uh, very interesting. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, all very important points when, uh, but it is quite different when working with a live band on stage 
uh, versus in a recording studio where the live band is on, I mean, the band is on a track and not performing at the same time as the vocalist. Uh, and this, in this particular video, it's a choir. So they may be used to singing with, not in a recording studio, just harmonizing with themselves. And so, uh, you know, an in-ear monitor, the, the different balance would probably throw them off. Yeah, I, I do think it's, I, th I think that what we're seeing here is, is an effect of, of uh, experience with being in a studio by one or the other, either record, recording engineer, the, the, the vocalist or both. Um, so, I, yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Um, next question. Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia asked, is the Office Hours community moving away from Blackmagic cameras to Sony cameras and why? Go ahead, Mitchell. I'm the big uh, Sony fanboy, and I would say probably not, um, except for the fact that Sony has that wonderful uh, autofocus and not yet on Blackmagic. Hopefully they will somewhere down the road. But um, I don't see the need to, uh, to make the move either way um, if I have something that works well for me for at least one good reason. Uh, with Blackmagic, I would say remote control, easily done with your ATEM. With the Sony, I would say convenient uh, autofocus that's pretty much bulletproof. So it's up to you to decide which is more important to you. Go ahead, Courtney. I think it depends a lot on uh, the ability to adjust the black magic if it's inside a teleprompter. Because if it's inside a teleprompter, you can't look at the image and control it uh, with uh, unless you've got an app or some some means of controlling the camera remotely. I'm still going with my Canon M50 Mark II uh, uh, because it works okay. The autofocus is not near as fast as the Sony. You know, it will focus on my hand eventually. But uh, and it will find my face eventually, but not near as fast as the Sony's do. I think the people have gone to the Sony's for that fast autofocus and accurate autofocus. Yeah, I still do a lot of production with Blackmagic cameras, um, and uh, so I've got you know, Ona knows we've got a couple twelve Ks and a bunch of six Ks, and we still do a lot. And when we're doing live multi camera for a lot of things that we use it for, for some of our, for a lot of our larger gigs, I will say that we've moved to Sony's for a variety of reasons. The number one is that the FR7 is a full frame sensor. It looks amazing and it's really, really powerful. Like it is, the FR7 is what had us move a lot of our stuff from Blackmagic in production to, and it's a mixture of a full frame sensor with great autofocus mixed with um, a PTZ that's actually working fairly well. There's there's some drawbacks. We need longer lenses on them and a bunch of other things, and the controls aren't as good. Um, but uh, but the uh, the FR7s were a big change for how we did production, um, and so that's the that's been the thing for own I know for myself. Uh, it's autofocus, as as Mitchell said. I I had a Blackmagic camera and leaning in and out. I wanted to have short depth of field. And leaning in and out would just became intolerable for me, um, you know. And so being able to just know I can sit down and do it. And for a lot of social bloggers, uh, a lot of them are using um, some version of a Sony camera because of um, autofocus. And so the autofocus is there. Um, and I think, but again, I I think that the the interface of controlling both from the switcher as well as on the camera on Blackmagic is far better. Um, than than Sony's. I mean, Sony's got still has the like the affliction of all these weird little menus, and it's hard to get to things. And um, and Blackmagic interface is dramatically better than um, the Sony's uh, interface. It's how it manages recording ProRes and you know a lot of the other things, and how it manages um, writing and how it integrates with with Resolve is still 
um, you know, I think far superior to what what we can do with Sony. So I think that there's still a bunch of advantages to um, to shooting with a Blackmagic camera, and I still do a lot of production with a Blackmagic camera. But my home kit became a Sony, and it was pr almost completely because of the autofocus. I will say that, um, you know, I think the problem that Blackmagic has, and now the pressure is increasing because Sony just released this camera, which we'll talk about in a second, is that they're halfway in between. They're very inexpensive, but they don't have an autofocus, so it doesn't work as well for social media. And they don't have a global shutter, so it doesn't work for the upper, uh, you know, for, for larger film productions. If Blackmagic solves one or the other, I think they'd be fine. <laughs> you know, like they got to solve one. They got to solve one of those, and they'll they're but they're inches away from running running the table. Um, they just need to they need to solve one or the other of those two problems, um, and then they could they could really um, expand pretty quickly. And it, a lot of it has to do with again, and I'm not talking. You know, it's uh, a lot of it has to do with the integration with Resolve, and it doesn't have to do with established TV and film. It has to do with everybody else, you know, and, and that's a really large part of the pyramid, like 95% of the pyramid. Uh, next question. From Khalid Ajumayev from Hassa, Saudi Arabia. It's not a rumor. Sony actually announced the A9 III about an hour ago. I think I read the, the, the I don't know, I read the thing a little bit differently. <laughs> I just misread it. Um, and uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, Khalid. Um, and uh, it is, uh, so it is out. Uh, it is the A9. It is 120 frames a second. It's interesting how everything's going to 120 frames a second. Hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. Anyway, so, uh, so, the, um, so 120 frames a second. Um, it is a, you know, all, all the things that we had talked about, the uh, um, global, full, uh, their first full frame global shutter. Well, it's the A9. Is the, I know it's not Sony's first global shutter. They have some bigger cameras that have that. Um, um, but uh, anyway, so I think that it's a, uh, um, it looks super impressive. Um, I, th I think that I would, uh, you know, it, it looks like something that would be really fun to, to take out for testing. Um, and, uh, but it's got, you know, it's a beast of a camera. Uh, full, you know, like all the, all the bits and pieces. It's got an Ethernet jack on the side of it, which is, I find fascinating. So if, if it has an Ethernet jack, then you start to think maybe you could control it remotely, if you, could, you know, like a, with an API. Hmm. Electronic viewfinder too. Yeah. So so anyway, um, yeah, $6,000, uh, $59.99 or 98 um, And it's still not going to arrive until next spring. So if you're trying to pull out your credit card right now or get an end of the year sale, not going to happen. <laughs> so you still got some weight, but we should be able to review it. I'm sure. I'm sure we'll see it at NAB, and that's probably their their target. Um, next question. Next one in from Macier Lavasier from Leipzig, Delaware, and it's a QR code question. How are you using AI to adjust scripts in theater to the show? Maybe changing locale or historical contest, et cetera, et cetera. How has this been affected by the recent strikes at the artist world and the questions raised from there? Yeah, so I don't, I, this was from yesterday, but I, I do want to kind of address it anyway. Um, the uh, the writers actually want to have access to the AI, and I don't know exactly where it all landed with the strike, but the, the whole push back and forth where the writers want, were like, we don't want you to replace us with it, but we still want to use it. <laughs> so we, we still, because it's really useful. You can, there is so much you can do with um, having AI, you know, uh, when you're trying to think about things like um, how would a person... Uh, from a military background or from an aircraft background or from a, this kind of background say something, 
Uh, a large language model may do that better than a writer that doesn't have life experience in that area. And so the ability to you know work on dialogue, it might mean that we have better dialogue in some of those areas uh, than we had in the past, um, or really brainstorming and thinking about it. And so that, when I talk to writers, a lot of them are, are talking about that, um, where they're, they're, they can deepen what they're doing or come up with brainstorming ideas. A lot of them are under a lot of pressure to do things around, uh, you know, especially with TV, to produce a lot of storylines very, very quickly. And they have big writing rooms to do that. And they want to be able to use it for that. They just don't want that to become something that replaces them or even their work to be something that, that, that um, their work with the large language model improves the large language model to a point where it replaces them. So that, that was a big piece of the fight that, that was happening um, for the strike. Go ahead, Courtney. Also, AI has the ability to write in the style of another writer. And if that writer, if the writers in the show are not familiar with the style of the writer they're supposed to be writing in, it would be a good help to them to have it, you know, write in the in Shakespearean format or, you know, in the style of Emily Bronte or, uh, you know, you can, you can have it be creative in the style of an existing writer to write a specific script on a specific subject, so. And I apologize. I, I, if you saw it go black, that was me. I, I went through the, I went through the, the, the time for them answering this question. So anyway, I was watching the time, watching the time, watching the time, and then forgot about the time. <laughs> anyway, um, next, next question. Next question from Matthias Utila from Helsinki, Finland. Does panelists have experience with the new Mac OS Sonoma? My uh, MacBook Pro is not tied into production, but used daily in work. Want to explore new features, but avoid unnecessary hassle with compatibility issues. You know, it always comes down to what you're actually doing. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, uh, I am the most uh, risk-friendly uh, person probably on the panel. I typically, day one, yep, upgrade, do it. Uh, I make money with my machines all the time. I think the key thing is how much other hardware are you tied into? And I, and I know that people roll their eyes and they think I'm ridiculous and crazy and yeah, maybe, uh, but literally I'm, all my machines are on Sonoma every time there's an update. Yep. Do it, do it, do it. Now I tend to use primarily, you know, Apple software. Okay. So I, I lean on Final Cut heavily. I do use the creative cloud suite except for Premiere, uh, and I'm not having any real, I, I'm not having any problems. There have been times when it's like, oh, and you know, a couple of weeks later, some, some patch gets happened, but nothing, nothing has ever brought me to a grinding halt. And I think, and, and I, and I kind of laugh at the, well, you should wait until you're not in the middle of production before you upgrade. Cause I'm always in the middle of something. So I'd be using literally like Final Cut or uh, Mac OS seven. If I, if I waited until I wasn't in production before I upgraded. So Sonoma's fine. Just go yeah, I've dipped my toe into it. I've got a couple of machines on Sonoma right now, and they're working really well, I have to admit. So I'm, it, it may, I'll, I'll be slowly adding it to the other machines. Um, but I do it very slowly. I still do it like, oh, let's see what happens here. And, um, and so I'm, uh, but I, I, and I'm, and I am actually uh, after t after next week between productions, unlike Chris. Um, and so I can actually just uh, so I'm going to probably upgrade everything next week, uh, middle of next week. So what, I'll let you know. What's that like? It's so amazing. It is amazing. It's the best. Except then you're constantly worried if I don't if this lasts too long, I'm in trouble. But I've got the 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 uh, upcoming stuff next year is pretty intense. So I'm not not uh, I'm not too worried about that. Next question. 
Next one in from Eduardo Augustine at Panama City, Panama. How is the Linsole in-ear headphones connected to your setup? So I have the Linsoles, um, the SE, I think they're called the SE10s or whatever. And it's just like a company. Linsole just happened to be one of the ones that sells them. They're some kind of Chinese-made in-ear uh, monitors. Um, mine is connected. Uh, my headsets are actually connected to my Mix Pre. So I hear the Mix. And the reason I have it connected to the Mix Pre is because I, and I have a little, the one note is I have an extension key. <laughs> you have to have an extension. Uh, six, uh, it's a... Uh, three foot, three foot extension. The six foot's too long. Three foot is just right. Um, so I have a three foot extension. It is because I have a roller chair. It is metal. It is a metal weaved. Uh, so when I roll over it, it doesn't break. Um, anyway, metal weaved um, uh, extension to it. Uh, plugged in the mix pre. And the reason the mix pre is important for me is because I'm listening to a mix of the panel and myself and potentially another channel. And so I can have all that mixed together and routed into my ears um, through that. And that has it's really effective. Uh, for 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 what I do, yeah, I got Chris. Yeah, I'm doing the same thing, and and we're going to talk about this more. We're going to finish the discussion that we had last week about uh, my audio routing nightmare, and part of part of the reason why uh, the headphones are plugged right into the Mix Pre is you you need to be able to listen to yourself with zero latency. And so when my headphones are plugged into the same device that the Mic Pre is, and I'm listening directly to it. I'm listening to myself differently than you're listening to your to, uh, to me, and as a matter of fact, just since Alex, uh, since the we did that thing, I had a friend of mine watch it, and he goes, "Yeah, your uh, your sync is way out." I was like, "Oh, sorry," and and I don't know, you don't normally say that. I don't know if you're just being kind or if it was just off last week, but um, I have since put an audio hijack delay. I'm currently yeah we're. About 80 milliseconds. See, I was doing this in the pre-show here. Ready? Your opinion? It's fine on my end. Um, the uh, awesome. I can't tell. Like the way, because well, the way I see program, I can't tell. Like I just, oh, okay. I can't tell until I look back on it. Um, it is something that we have. We have to. Um, there's some stuff we're working on so that we can do everybody sync on in post. We can't do it right now with the kit. But what we're looking at is being able to resync everybody. Right. In uh, in po in post because I actually don't want any individual somewhere in the future I don't want any individual to do delay because it actually slows our conversation down so I want us to just do whatever we're going to do and then be able right. to tweak every person's sync you know based on what we see on the back end but we're not we're not quite there yet. Well, let me know. I'll take it out. But anyway, uh, and that's a little bit off. No, of no, your leave, question it, leave it in for Eduardo. now. But I'm saying yeah, yeah. down the road that's what we're trying to get to. Yeah. But but that's the key thing. You need to be plugged into the same. Um, I had a term for this once. Uh, time, not time frame, but time plane, like the mic pre and the headphones have to be the same. Otherwise, here's the thing. If you hear yourself with even a little bit of delay, your IQ drops like 50%. It's so hard to, to talk. Oh, you can't. And, and, you have to listen to yourself at zero latency. And I firmly believe that there are people that are um, just trying to push through and overcome it. There's certain like podcasts and stuff you listen to and you're like, that guy's got to hear himself on delay because nobody's nobody sounds like that. <laughs> <laughs> go, go ahead, Mitchell. I'm gonna make a brave statement. I don't think I've ever been out of sync because I'm plugged into my camera, and I know some people don't like doing that. And as far as uh, uh, headphones, they're plugged directly into my uh, mute box as a side channel, and I'm hearing it right off the preamp, so I don't hear any delay. Next question. 
Next one in from Kevin Graham in Rochester, New York. Can you show and produce the Fenwick audio loopback method for PCs? I don't think Pen Fenwick can do that. I think we're talking about having some other folks jump on and do that. I, I absolutely will not participate in that show. <laughs> Courtney will do it, though. <laughs> Courtney likes that stuff. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. You know, I thought, well, maybe I, I, I've i never tried it. The uh, VB Audio's voice meter potatoes. What we're talking about here is is a it's a virtual uh, sound device for the PC world, uh, similar to what the uh, uh, loopback and uh, hijack does. Uh, but it has a skeuomorphic interface to it. It doesn't have the nodal interconnection for the routing, so it's much more confusing. I downloaded it and tried to get my head around it, and I gave up after about 30 minutes because it was just uh, it adds it adds a a several virtual three virtual devices to your audio setup on your PC plus so a cassette deck, Courtney. That. Yeah, it does. Do have a, it's so skeuomorphic that it has a record control over this cassette deck up here in the corner. Oh, good grief. <laughs> so uh, do, do you get access to the individual apps though? Uh, yeah, yeah, you do. I think uh, you can control it. It supports uh, three virtual devices, three vir virtual devices and five actual devices. Uh, so that can be software or hardware inputs and um you have full control you know you it's just like a sound mix it's like sound panel or what was that uh, software uh, sound desk that we yeah. reviewed the other day uh so you have all the controls over you know uh any of the direct x effects you know you get a reverb and and compression and limiting etc on each of those channels so you can do all that stuff and it's uh, reasonably priced if not free to try go jeff it, when this whole thing started down and Chris was showing, it's like, look, I can listen to my individual sounds from each individual one. I, I immediately was like, what? what? What do you mean? Because Windows Volume Mixer has that already there. And it's been there. It's nothing new. Um, but I I just don't understand what, what it was all about until you got deeper, Chris. And then you were like, now I could bring this one to send to a specific aux effectively is what you're doing. And that aux is assigned to an output. Okay. Yeah. Now I see a little bit more of the flexibility of what you were trying to achieve. Yeah. I mean, obviously the two OSs are different and yes, Windows has that. I would, I, I'd love to know the percentage of Windows users that have ever seen that screen. <laughs> I use it one. daily. So I know, but me, it means one yeah, percent. All the you're not, you're not a typical user. But, but it's so also again, to be fair. To be fair, what's the percentage of users that use Loopback as well on the Mac? You know, very true. No, no, no. Yeah. Hey, this is very fringy stuff. And you know, the the gentleman uh, uh, Chuck Braverman, a friend of mine, who has a pod uh, a video show called um, West Doc Online, where he interviews uh, documentary filmmakers. Very interesting current show that's going on about a guy who did a, the world's largest stained glass window. Anyway, um, he started watching it, and he goes, well, can you just explain it simpler? I said, yeah. Actually, no, it's, simple super, guess. it's super complicated and it's not for everyone. And I get it. Not everybody wants to or needs to do what I do. And I get that. And if you want to use Windows, by all means, uh, just don't ask me for help. Uh, but but it's it's super complicated. And again, I, I, I think I referred to it. You put a whole lot of brain work into it on the head end. And now it's literally just these little faders on my desktop. I love it. You go ahead, Courtney. 
And another difference between hijack and loopback is, is that you can create multiple paths. So you can take one, one source and route it to three different outputs or one output and, or, you know, uh, route it to multiple uh, diff different destinations. And it's difficult to do that with a built-in Windows mixer. You can choose which, which destination you want that particular uh, channel, let's say your, your uh, sounds from your browser to go to. Uh, but you can't have it go to three different things. I, at least I haven't found a way to do it. Maybe no, I that's can have it to three different places BB at three different game on. levels too. Yeah, yeah, and, right, exactly. Yeah. And I and I have to admit that what I'm really excited about is is the the uh, as we kind of go through it, we'll do it I, again. It was hard for me. I decided I don't want to change anything from where we left off last time, so I'm not doing anything until tomorrow. But then after tomorrow, like next this coming weekend or the weekend after, I'm going to rip the whole thing apart. And put it all back together, and this is all going to be part of that system. And and the reason that I'm, you know, really excited about it, I do a lot of presentations outside of the show, and I've got lots of computers and lots of I/O and everything else, and it's a little clunky. And I realized, oh, I can fix all of this. You know, like I can fix all of it because I'm going to be adding, you know, multiple computers with Dante and like lots of other things that are all kind of tied together so that they're all talking to each other. And, um, you know, and I have phone inputs, Bluetooth inputs and all kinds of other things that I'm going to be tying all into the system and, um, and taking and there's no way. And it was like one of those things like I knew that I had to figure it out. and I knew that Chris knew it. And that's why I was like, we should do a lab. And then we, you know, I, and I realized it's better to do it here. That's the best way for me to do something is to just do a show about it because then I actually get to it. Um, and so the um, so I'm, I'm excited about having the mixer. In fact, I'll probably end up. I mean, I bought an X32 to do this in my house, and I um, then it became part of our podcast rig. <laughs> I never, then I never got to it. I go ahead, Jeff. Well, that's all I was going to suggest is what if you have Dante? You, you mentioned it, Alex. I I would use Dante, uh, and I have uh, in previous shows. I just simplified my life here, where I'm using this silly little Personas audio mic interface, and it does the mixing and everything I need. Um, but with what I need to hear. I just use the built-in audio mixer. Yeah, I, I guess what I would say is I'm doing. I need. I'm doing a, some pretty co complex presentations that require me to fade things up and down and do all. You know, so I need the hardware interface. I need yeah. all the bits and pieces, and I need to, you know, have sometimes where things are both up and sometimes when they're not. And again, I will admit that because I have the tools and because I've been doing this for 15 years. I do things that are kind of like mind-numbingly complicated. Like I actually have two keynote files that are running. One is getting comped over top of me and one is getting going is managing the full screen. And that's two different computers that are just running the presentation. And then there's an app computer and then there's the, the Telestrator computer and then there's the, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that are all happening. And all of those things are, you know, blended together. It makes a much better presentation. Like <laughs> I did a presentation for someone raising money, and they said, "Well, I don't know if I want to give you money for the project, but I really like to know how you did that." <laughs> they were like, "Like, they were like, how you did that presentation?" So, so, so I'll pay for that. You know. Anyway, so um, uh, next next question. John Richardson from New York and Florida. Can you guys recommend a really inexpensive motorized slider to mess with and practice? Weight would be for a light camera or maybe phone. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things that you might want to look at. Syrup makes um, some sliders, so S-Y-R-P. It's kind of middle expensive um, there. Uh, GVM and Newer make some really, really inexpensive ones. They're in the like the 350 range. As soon as you like, motorized, you're going to go from 151 to $200 to 350 to 450 or $500, um, you know, for those. Um, and then, and we're talking again, you said inexpensive. So we're trying to live inside of this inexpensive world. The next step up from there, again, Syrup uh, also... Um, uh, 
Edelchrome makes some that are, you know, they make arms and sliders and, and everything else. And then, you know, you can spend as much as you'd like on a slider system. So, um, you know, there's, we've used ones, there's one called the real slider, which is this, I mean, the beefiest slider that you've ever seen. It's like just, it's built like a tank. And we've built ones, we've built slider systems that are like 36 feet long and, you know, it's full motorized back and forth. Now we use those mostly for time-lapse. And I will tell you the parallax from a 36 foot time-lapse is amazing. <laughs> like just so, so amazing. Uh, anyway, go ahead, Jeff. I, I echo a lot of what uh, Alex said there, that there are a lot of choices. You could hit Amazon and find a lot of inexpensive ones. And it's relative of what your budget is. Uh, I found some, I bought some, I installed some from Mark Roberts. They were not inexpensive at all, uh, but they work and they're accurate to the millimeter. So the, they're using them for MoCo pur purposes. So they're able to move that that slider to an exact position every single time. And that, and if you're just not needing to have that kind of exactness, there's a lot of more inexpensive ones out there. Um, after seeing what was done, I was like, well, that's just silly. That's just really simple. I don't need that exactness for our production. So we ended up using uh, what theirs were built out of or similar uh, other ones are built out of is extruded aluminum. So it's 80-20 is kind of like the, the given uh, here in the U.S. Uh, there's T-slot also, but the extruded aluminum and there's different sliders that are available for them for the robotic side of the world. And that's all you're building is a robot. It's just a one axis robot that goes forward and backwards. And then getting YouTube and you go down this rabbit hole and everybody's done everything you can think of that's you want to do. So they will show you how to build a PCB if you need to go that deep into it, or you can buy a simple motor controller once you have the slider set up. A motor controller, uh, one of the best ones is um, Kessler. Uh, they they have just a simple, really easy to use, and it's not just a forward and backwards type thing. You can set in waypoints, you can set in uh, endpoints, and yeah, I I, I love talking sliders because it was just a fun project. I have two sticks of twenty foot that we still are using, so we can do a forty foot long uh, slider combining those together, and uh, it, it's a fun project if you have space for it. It's a lot of good. fun. Good, Mitchell. Yeah, if I were to misread your question as expensive motorized sliders, I would agree with Jeff. The Kessler is great. <laughs> They're well well built. I mean, just unbelievably no, well built. No, I'm just built. talking the motor. I'm just and, talking the motor system. I'm not, I'm not talking about the eco, slider. But their whole ecosystem is marvelous. Yeah. Um, Kessler makes a lot. They have a lot of great things. We've used the Kessler cranes a lot, um, you know, so um, so that they're they're good. Next question. Next one from Matthias Utila from Helsinki, Finland. Building a kit to be sent to presenters uh, need to connect as webcam and also to record locally. Goal is to have as easy setup to the presenter as possible, A10 Mini, Mac Mini, or what else to tie it all in. Any ideas to start? Maybe after hours could help. This is a QR question. Uh, yeah, so um, we've built a bunch of these kits, and it just depends on how how complicated you want to make it. Um, if you're doing a webcam, it's going to be a little easier for them to set up. I do recommend, um, I'm going to assume that because you said Mac mini that you're on the Mac side, the Mac mini makes a big difference. Uh, so a Mac mini, you now what we've built into the, the, our largest kits are a black magic camera. Although at this point sending it out, if I was recording, I'd probably be tempted to do a Sony because the number one challenge we have online is getting this focus working on the black magic. 
Um, and so the, uh, but the, because we're trying to re remote control it. Now, what we've done is we, our large kits have, I mean, and again, I'll just give you the far end of it, is a mix pre with a noise assist. Um, it is a uh, ATEM uh, that is controlling the camera. And it, then it is the Blackmagic camera. That way we can shade the camera or we can get to the camera is really what we're working on because we use the, we can then talk to the camera there. And then also through the Mac mini, we put the Blackmagic control software on so we can talk directly to the camera. The only thing we can't change is the LUT, which we don't care about because we're recording um, typically via, uh, we're recording log to the camera um, so that we can do color correction later. Um, we put that through a teleprompter so that they can see it. And it, takes, it does take the user about 45 minutes to set that one up. We then, when we want to cut down from there, we, we're kind of using a lot of, we used to use the Brios, now we're using the Lynx. So you have a Link with a Mac Mini with a little monitor um, that can make that work. I will say there's, there is a point where a laptop makes more sense. So a laptop on the, that little brew coon stand that I've talked about before, um, you can put that laptop on and it's a lot easier for them to set up. You know, that's the big thing. What we don't have, which we wish we had, which we asked for every, I've asked for from different companies every year for 15 years is a black box that lets us control the preamp. <laughs> like that just, like I just want to have the, and not just the preamp, but the connection to the computer. So I want to be able to have them plug their mic in and I don't want them to have any dials that they have to deal with. I mean, we just did one with the mixed pre and the number one thing is trying to, can you turn that dial up and down and blah, 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 when we could just be, you know, that's, that drives us absolutely crazy. So, so anyway, that's the, you know, that's the real um, thing that we, audio is really the thing that bothers us the most about that. But I will say a Mac mini, what we do is we put um, AnyDesk on the Mac mini as well as remote control and a VPN. The AnyDesk is just so we can get to it. And then once we get to it, we turn the VPN on and then go back to Apple remote desktop because it's, it runs a little bit more smoothly. And then, but being able, whatever you're going to do, you need a computer that you're handing to them for a high-end solution. You need a computer that you're handing them that you can control because trying to tell them what window to open and everything else is kind of a disaster. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Sound devices, if you're listening, a black box like Alex oh. described it. You plug the mic in, it's got noise assist in it too, they just know. in case. And uh, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing? They know. They all know. They all know what I want. <laughs> go ahead, Jeff. Why couldn't you use a Studio Technologies box or any other Dante preamp box at that point? Um, the, well, I mean, the the... They have, can we completely remote control it from the camera? I mean, from the not, computer? I guess we can. Not from, I mean, I use a TerraTech for myself, which are now right. QSC, uh, but they have, it's not an infinite gain structure whenever you I mean, go to swat, slide the preamp, but you uh, have the ability to do all yeah. what you're asking. The, the big the big issue that we've had in the past is that when, if it's a live presenter, now if it's a record, it's one thing. If it's a live presenter, uh, the mix, um, uh, or the the uh, noise assist is pretty important, and it's more important to a remote person that we don't have any control over than it is at any other time. Because being able to turn that on, you know, just to limit, we've had lawnmowers and and um, you know the sea <laughs> for one person, and all kinds of other things. And they just hey, can you can you click this button? Can you push the thing and click this button, and then just turn it just a little further up, and you hear it go. And then they're nice and quiet for the presentation. <laughs> and we still record the raw one. It's it's it, it's very addicting. Um, and and I will say that the other thing is is that um, part of what we're sensitive to with using sound devices specifically is the limiter that's built in, which is exceptional, as well as the quietness of the preamp. Um, so that has left us a little bit. And Studio Technologies does a lot of good stuff. I'm going to actually take your idea though and do some research and you know think about whether that I hadn't thought about. 
I don't think of studio technologies in that box. You know, like that's the thing that you, I, I think when you brought that up, I was like, oh, I should think about that because for me, studio technologies is my comms, my, my, you know, my intercoms, my, uh, I, I used to have a studio technologies thing that took video, you know, a little lunchbox that took video back and forth. I don't, I didn't think of them as like a black box um, I think so. I'll do some research because that, I actually that, that's I would say I would suggest the QSCs. I can see you the link of the one or a TerraTech ones. I I I like I, those a little bit better because I have some experience with QSC and I'll probably stick with the studio technology. Well, they're a TerraTech. They just own the. They put their name on it. Uh, but the TerraTechs, we got like twenty of, thirty of them. I don't know. But, oh, and, and the thing about them is is I can log into it with their control software and then I can mm -hmm. change not only the preamp level, I can yeah. change every single the the. The uh, yeah. there's a low cut filter. Then yeah. there's also um, uh, the phantom power on and off. Yeah. I mean, so for what you're asking for now, it, it doesn't have mic clip. It doesn't have mic well, XLR connections. That's well, one thing on on the versions we use. Right. They're Phoenixes, yeah, so I mean, we build boxes anyway, so it doesn't matter. But they do have some that are wall plates, so you could use those that have regular yeah. XLRs going into them. Yeah, I gotta think about that a little bit. That's good. It's good. It's good input. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, the ST controller software for your Studio Tech uh, will allow you to set everything up, but it will not allow you to engage the uh, the right. microphones uh, and or the volume controls for the mix. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next question. Next one from Eduardo Augustine in Panama City, Panama. Which methods can I apply to get leads for jobs in this industry? You know, again, I think that we, looking for people who need it, and then doing it is a big piece of the puzzle. Like you gotta find a way. The way I've gotten into every community that I've ever been part of is that I, you know, I, I always think of the, um, you know, the, there's always in some adventure thing or spy thing, someone just picks up a box and carries it into the factory and no one notices because they're doing something, you know? And so, um, and, I, and I find that I've gotten into a lot of things by just simply quote unquote, picking up a box, which is in a lot of ways serving. Like I didn't, I was an outsider when I got to Denver and what I did was I did Photoshop how-tos for the print, you know, user group. You know, and um, Photoshop was new at the time. So it was it was kind of an exciting thing to see someone show you how to use an alpha channel or something like that. I usually didn't know what, when I said I would do it the month, the next month, that, oh, I'm going to talk about alpha channels. I barely know anything about alpha channels. And then I'd spend like a couple hours a day working on it, you know, and, uh, and then I'd get to that show and I'd look like an expert. And then I would do the same thing over every month. And then in the same way, when I was in, uh, I got on AOL, there were these forums on AOL and there was this one for electric image and you had all these broadcasters that were using electric image at the time and they would ask questions like, oh, I'm trying to figure this thing out. And what I would do is I would see it in the evening and then I would work all night on it. And then I was like, oh, I'm, uh, hey, you might want to try this. And I would just put this thing down. <laughs> I had no idea how to do it the night before. I just put eight hours into doing it. And then I would hand it to them and go to sleep or whatever for a couple hours and go to work. But I would say, oh, you, I, saw, I saw your question. You might want to try this. And I just threw it up. What that built was this, um, you know, kind of, uh, I, I built up my reputation by serving other people, by answering all their questions. And we still, we still do this. Uh, but, but by doing this, we were building up, I was building up my reputation with them. And I got a job at Lucasfilm because of that. <laughs> like, you know, so, so you have to, um, you, you, you want to look at how you look at your market and how do you serve that market. And that's a mixture of finding other people that do it, um, figuring out how you can become part of those teams. Um, you know, the, 
there's some people who will never do any work unless they're getting paid for it. And then there's people who just show up whenever they have extra time and just keep their legs moving. People who, who show up and keep their, they only do that every once in a while because they're a lot busier because there's like a culture that you become part of, of all these people like fiddling with their own passion projects. And you learn a bunch of things. You can take a bunch of risks. You get to meet a lot of people and, and it's, it's, the grease, you know, in the system. And, and that's the, and it creates an inside network that it's very hard to break into if you don't, if, if you don't, if you're not willing to play that game. So, you know, I would find ways to do, you know, look for when you're not busy, look for ways to serve other people that need your work and to work with other people that are doing your work and really become part of both of those communities. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. And if you want to get into the the business of live, live audiovisual stuff is just do a Google search for audiovisual rentals in my area and find any local rental houses that rent this AV equipment. And they might be willing to take you on as an intern or just offer to show up and uh, observe as an observer any of the events that they're they're scheduled to do. And you can learn a lot. You'll make a lot of good contacts. And if you can't find a rental company in your area, check with the major hotels because a lot of the major hotels have contracts with AV rental companies or they have an in-house AV rental department that will rent uh, screens and stuff for live banquets and presentations. So you might make contact with the hotels and offer to intern there. And that will get your foot in the door and it'll expose you to a lot of the equipment, how it works, how it's transported, how it's set up, all of that stuff. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. And to be clear, Alex wasn't recommending you actually trespass and just walk into doors with boxes. But, um, <laughs> you know, it does work. But, but I, yeah, it I does work, do it. but you're not recommending that. So no. um, the other thing that I would say is, you know, general, you know, how to, how to be noticed on, on a set. And I realize, Eduardo, you're talking about, like, how to get to that set. Some of these other ideas are good. But simple stuff like, you know, don't put your hands in your pocket. Don't stand around doing something. Always ask, what can I do for you? Hey, I have some time. Can, what can I do for you? You know, th that person on a set gets remembered. And and if you want to get, I'll tell you, the my number one place to be impressed by people is YouTube. Have a great YouTube channel with great work on it. Show us what you like to do. Show us what you can do. Um, yeah, that's what I'd say. Next question. Next one in from Gary Lund in McKinney, Texas. Yesterday's ChatGPT4 Turbo was released. Thoughts? I haven't had time to look at it, so I don't, I don't know. I don't have a lot of opinions about it. Um, it is. It looks like it's better. That's that, that's the word. It's better. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't see it in. I think that this is Turbo. I believe is mostly part is for API developers. I haven't seen any update to my interface. So unless they're just changing, I still see Chat GPT four. Um, yeah. So um, it says it's the latest. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I tried using uh, Microsoft's Copilot, which they've built into Windows eleven. Uh, now, but I found it incredible. Maybe it was just the time of day I was trying to use it, but I asked a question in the copilot, uh, and it's using Chat GPT three or four, and I clicked on most precise. So I asked it a question, and the result was so slow that it was doing about one word, you know, of its answer for every five but seconds. You asked it a very hard question. No, it wasn't. But it was one word. You know, it should be able to you know, compose an answer almost in real time that you could read it. But for some reason, it was like one word. It took about, I don't know, four minutes to deliver one paragraph. Yeah, it just depends and on when you do it. I mean, it can get incredibly slow. Yeah. It can get slow. I mean, I, 
I will admit that I, uh, I use it a lot for a lot of things. And I very, there are times when there's a lot of people hitting the servers that, um, you are, you are definitely getting a slower response, but there's a lot of times it's instant. And I, again, I don't, I don't use it for anything that we actually put into products, but I use it for brainstorming all the time. Ah, well, what was this? Like, how does this work? And what does this look like? And what does this, you know, and, and, um, and I just grab onto it and it doesn't, usually what ends up happening is I Google it afterwards and I look at for things, but it, it lets me, I, I don't even understand. Sometimes there's things I'm trying to figure out that I don't even understand the languaging for. Like, I don't even know how to ask for the thing that I'm trying to ask for. And so I go in there and I start getting up to speed and, and then I, then I go start searching for it and build from there. Um, but I, I will point out that the paid versions, if you have a subscription, I have a paid version. it's much for, it's much faster. The free, oh, yeah. si the free side, it can be painfully slow. So that's the, one of the easiest 20 bucks a month I spent. <laughs> Next question. Uh, next question is for me. I'm asking, my iPhone 6, yes, 6, just updated iOS 15.8. Am I living on borrowed time? And I see Chris Fenwick just disappear. I, you know, it does get better with newer iPhones. I'm just letting you know. I mean, I just, I know that that's going to be a shock to you, but um, it, it, there's some new phones that got better. Than Plus it have a headphone jack, though. That's my question. Yeah, I think you have to give that up. That's, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, but now you have USB-C. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael is here. I remember the DEF CON, the famous cybersecurity conference, held their 2020 virtual edition on Discord. Wouldn't you need a web presenter or somewhere a box to push video into Discord, uh, considering it doesn't support virtual cameras on Mac OS? Yes, you would. I, I don't know if you do now. I have to, I have to admit, we, we started experimenting like, oh, we can do something in Discord, and we found it to be so clunky that we just stopped using it. Um, we might return to it, but it was like, a, it was clunky and limited and difficult to work with. And we just, um, it, you could tell that they don't do a lot of video. <laughs> so anyway, next question. Tony Mobley, noon in Georgia asking, the house of worship that I have been working with is planning to build a building that they want to do hybrid. I know I'm 90 miles away. What infrastructure should be in the building for Zoom and YouTube? Well, the big thing is, is if you're the one that's accountable for it and you're 90, mi you're, um, 90 miles away, um, then what you want to think about is everything has to be remote controlled. So you want to be thinking about how you're going to build a VPN system. Um, and, you know, there's a variety of ways of doing that. It'd be great to kind of, we could probably jump into after hours and talk through that. But uh, you want to be thinking everything needs to be something you can control remotely. And that's the big thing is that you can, you, 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 want, you might have hands on, on the ground, uh, that can move things for you. But if it's, it, you got to be able to control those things um, from a remote interface. And so that changes what you build or what you plan for to make that work. Go ahead, Courtney. And if you're specking out the building, uh, you know, a new sanctuary or worship building of some sort, spec fiber so that they install fiber yeah. everywhere and a uh, high speed, uh, of course, connection, 10 gigabit, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, at least at least, a, you know, make sure that wherever they're putting it, that you start now trying to figure out what the Internet is going to look like. Uh, when anyone builds a building and asks me what to do to what Courtney's saying is I'm like, run TAC 12. There's one pick a room, any room, I don't know, any room centrally is better. It's a little easier, but pick a room. And from that room, you run TAC 12 to every other room every other room except for the bathrooms but but outside of that run into every the kitchen you you might want to do cooking little cooking things that get people involved the all the other rooms you and they'll go well i don't know what i'm gonna do with tac 12 in each one doesn't matter you don't even have to terminate it like just terminate like just just run it because it's so it's not very expensive in the in the grand scheme of things it's not very expensive and then the other thing i would say 
is run that fiber through a conduit that is at least two inches in diameter. So just, you know, everything, you know, you want conduit between all of these things, not just like attaching it to the wall. And it'll be a little bit more expensive. It is not, like someone will go, oh, it's $3,000 to do that to all the rooms or whatever. Worth it, like compared to the, whatever you're spending on the rest of the building, worth having the extra, spend that extra little extra there and make sure that that's, you know, talk to someone about it and make sure that you know how you're going to get cables in and out of that. It is life-changing when you get that working correctly. Um, because, you know, and I've walked into a couple, like my house is partially that way because there was a CTO that had my house before me. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of cabling. Now, I don't think he actually did any wiring himself and it's, there's some problems with it that I have to redo, but, but at least there's routes to every room, you know? And so, so I think that you want to, um, you really want to think about that. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. Next one in from Douglas Carmichael asking, Alex, you mentioned AI-based captioning workflows. Would there be any vendor that brings that workflow onto an iPad or mobile device? It could be a boon to many with disabilities. Uh, yeah, I think Apple actually does. <laughs> I think that the phone, I don't remember what the setting is, but I think you can, you can have your iPhone just start capturing everything it's hearing. Um, I don't know if it'll caption everything that's coming through it. But anything that it hears, you can have it actually caption now. Um, and I don't, I don't remember the, what the setting is, but, but I, I remember it being there. Um, next question. Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia asked, Will there be much difference if I use the iPhone 11 Pro Max as my camera and give away my XS Max as my main camera using the Shoot App Pro? Um, you, uh, no, there won't be much difference between those two cameras. Like they're not, they're not dramatically different as far as um, the quality of those cameras. Next question. Douglas Carmichael. Jeff, you mentioned Windows 11 is having a more efficient network stack than Windows 10. How do you prepare Windows 11 for a production machine? Jeff? I didn't raise my hand on that because I don't have a prepared list of do this and this and this. There's a lot of a lot of guides out there and a lot of YouTubes that are, are showing this. Tom's Hardware is a great place to start of how to streamline your system, but uh, I will not publicly is share there, what is, I do. Is there uh, is there any way to, to, other than enterprise to get rid of the updates? If you're in pro, you can, you can postpone you can, them, you can but postpone you can't get them. rid of them. No. It's Enter. a feature. Enter why I don't use Windows in production. <laughs> so, so like, like postpone it, is the same as preventing. But it, but eventually I mean, it just, just goes no. It. Eventually, but no. But eventually it goes no. You have to do it. Like it, yeah, you can post months later. Years yeah, later. months and later. Like I have delay of thirty days, and, have, and then schedule a day to do all your updates. Yeah. And then it breaks a bunch of stuff that I didn't need to break. That I didn't need anything updated on the site. On the site, like I didn't need that to be done. Like I can leave it the way it is because you know I don't have to destabilize an entire system to run. I had a pro like the reason I stopped using Oculus was that every time Windows ran an update, my Oculus would stop working. And I was like, oh, then I have to figure out how to patch that. And I have to patch a bunch of other things. Like, it was running fine. Like that's all it was doing. Like I didn't need to do anything else. I didn't need to change anything else. It's just so frustrating. Anyway, go ahead, Mitchell. I'm just not that good with Windows, but I've got two machines that run radio station automation software for streaming into retail stores. And they're currently running Windows 10. And I know... I know for a fact that if I go to 11, I'm going to have issues with the sound card, maybe the uh, some of the uh, calls that the software is making. 
And I've just, I, you know, I went through that with 10. Now I got to go through it with 11. I might as well be thinking about 12 or 13. Good, Jeff. There, there is the, the Windows update service. You could disable that and it won't make the call outs. It, but at a certain point, you're going to need to do it. You have to do updates because there's going to be some. As a Mac user, I, I don't feel that way. <laughs> I don't okay. have to do updates. <laughs> you say <laughs> you know? that, and, and I know that and, and we don't see eye to eye on the whole Mac thing, but I have a Mac that I spent a MacBook Pro that did an update, a Mac update, and it bricked it. So I've never been able to get that machine back. It's runs Windows, great. And it's been running Windows for years. But that's the same. I'm in the same opposite boat, but same situation. It's just, it, it bricked well, it and I never the, could get it to come back. The key is I just, well, there's a bunch of reasons that things get bricked when you update something. But the, um, the, the, uh, but what I will say is that I just don't have to do it. Like I can sit there and okay. leave, leave it in a system, leave it in a state that works for, as a, as a system forever. And I'm, I'm quite happy with that. Um, I, I don't mind using Windows. I mean, it works fine with the audio card that I have that's running it. But the thing that gets me is that it's trying to make decisions for me, like auto update. You got to hack it to be able to get it to stop doing that, or logging in. You got to hack it yeah. uh, to be able to keep it anyway, from doing it. It's just all that stuff. Yep. I, yeah, I don't want to get into that. So we shortened it. We 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 shortened the. Uh, we went ahead. We had so many questions for the first hour. Just so people understand what happened was we had so many questions for the first hour, and I wasn't really sure what to like. We had planned this, and I was like, I don't really know what to talk about for the second hour. So if there's a lot of questions, I'll pinpoint. I'll I'll, I'll pivot over, but I wasn't sure exactly how I was going to cover this. I have to admit, I uh, uh, I got distracted. I got I had an injury, and I got. Um, a little distracted over the last couple of days while I was managing that and going to hospitals and x-rays and stuff like that. So I didn't have time to like sit down and think about that, <laughs> think about that process as much as I, I normally would. So we went ahead and had, um, so we'll probably come back to this a little bit more. Uh, but I will, if you have any questions about starting in 3D, definitely throw, throw it in there. I'm probably going to do something. Rather than trying to do it in 20 minutes, we're going to answer any questions that you have about 3D, which we have one question at the moment, so this will be a really short trip. But we went ahead and let it, we'll let it go to two Q&As. I just wasn't, I just wasn't able to prepare. I, I move a little slower when I'm on a lot of painkillers. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, next question. Dave Troutman from Edmonton, Canada, asking, are more keyframes better than fewer for most movement control in animation? Well, that's such a great question as our, as our, as our 3D question. So it depends. It depends on, on what you're doing. So here's the, in general, what you want to do is you want to minimize the number of keyframes you're using because as you make the adjustments of the keyframes, you're making adjustments. You now have, you have a tendency to get pinches because I made this one over here. So if you make lots and lots of keyframes, um, the issue is, is that you're now managing all those keyframes as you do all the other things you will. So the, the generally the way we work with most animation and 3d animation being part of it is get the big movements in first, you know, so I'm going to go here and then I'm going to go here and then I'm going to go here. And then you, then you start adding smaller motions on top of that. The other thing that a lot of us do is start doing those in layers. And so you can actually apply, um, you know, layers that are, that are affecting that, that you can actually turn on and off so that there's little adjustments that are happening to the 3d um, you know, to the to, to 3D or 2D, and you're having the big things that are all that are all there, and they stay there, and then you can start adding subtleties to a lot of those bits and pieces. And the the advantage of that, of course, is that you are you really able to, um, you know, uh, 
you know, the, the big thing is, is that if you do the little things first, getting to the big things, now you can't get there without like, the big thing you end up with is velocity changes. So um, one of the things that we used to have still, I, I have not seen properly uh, displayed in any 3D or 2D app since I was at ILM, which was, we had a, we had an animation where we could set the keyframes and you would see two things that were underneath it. You would see your velocity curve and your acceleration curve. And the velocity curve is of course the derivative of the, of your F curve, your function curve, your function of, of, of position over time. And then you see the, the velocity curve and the acceleration curve. And what those did is allowed you to, um, you, it, it, when you saw those, you could understand where you were going to have little hiccups, little hitches in something moving. And, you know, we've asked for those things and we haven't gotten the kind of the proper representation as good as what we had 25 years ago <laughs> in, in a little standalone app. So um, next, uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, After Effects is not a big 3D program, but it does do some 3D work and it has exactly what you were just asking about. Alex, um, Bezier curves are your friends. Um, motion math is also very helpful and doing things uh, mathematically with expressions will uh, eliminate keyframes and make things happen naturally. Next question. Next one in from Adrian Watkins in Wellington, New Zealand. What are the best free resources to use for learning 3D from scratch? YouTube. <laughs> Like, like, like YouTube is the is the best resource. You can search for whatever application you're trying to learn, and search for um, whatever you're trying to learn to do, and you're going to find that you're gonna, you're going to see a lot of great YouTube videos that describe it. Go ahead, Courtney. And there are free uh, 3D software that runs in browsers uh, for 3D object creation, SketchUp from Google or Trimble software and uh, Tinkercad. It depends on what the purpose of your 3D creation of objects is for, whether you're doing it for 3D animation or 3D printing, et cetera, or architectural stuff. You know, that's a different world in itself. So look at SketchUp, look at uh, Tinkercad for creating objects that are precisely sized. And SketchUp, uh, you can move up to a paid plan where it is, you can work in either your browser or you to pay money like 350 bucks a year or something for the downloadable uh, application that runs natively on your computer. Yeah, and the main thing to think about is how serious you're going to get about and how much you're going to do in 3D. So, um, and then you start looking at the different applications that you may want to use. So, for instance, if you're doing a lot of LiDAR engineering and so on and so forth, you're going to want to look at the Autodesk products, the, the 3D Studios, the you know, AutoCADs, the, the uh, um, Revit, so on and so forth. The, they, those, those tools are going to work really well. If you're looking for broadcast animation, uh, Cinema 4D kind of owns that at this point. <laughs> so Cinema 4D is the is you know owns the space in in that in that in that area. So broadcast uh, education, uh, broadcast there, and they've got. I will say, if you're a student, which I know you're not necessarily a student, but if you are a student, um, it's like ten dollars a year or something to be to have Cinema 4D. So it's a very very inexpensive um, subscription for students to to be part of um, the. Um, uh, if you're just trying to learn how to do it and you don't know what you want to do, Blender is free and it's got lots of tools and it gets better and better all the time. If you're looking for really complex projects, Houdini is something you want to look at. It's really heavy. The one thing is you get really good at Houdini 
and you'll never be looking for work. <laughs> like it is really, really, people are always looking for Houdini artists, but you have to be really good at it and it takes years to get good at, to get good at it. So it's a, the education lift is very heavy with Houdini, but it is very valuable. Um, most production, large production companies are using some version of Maya. So Maya is still the, you know, is kind of the, the one that runs it. It's not that they use, I mean, they use Maya as the core. Um, so that, so, so in all of these, it, again, and again, it goes, it gets into, it depends on what you're trying, trying to do. Uh, but, um, but those are things to think about. SketchUp is obviously very popular in architectural and we use it a lot for our visualization. Like right now we're building some stuff and we take their drawings and turn it, use SketchUp to turn those drawings into a, into a 3D model that we can work with. Um, so those are some of the things to be, I, I will say as a note, Adobe's doing some great work in this area right now. They're 3D, they're 3D substance and some of their tools are getting to be pretty impressive. You're gonna say something, Courtney? Yeah, I was gonna ask you if there's any free on-ramps uh, to the more expensive like Maya and the more expensive 3D graphics uh, packages yeah. out there. Do they have entry level free I think you know, limited, have, limited work. Uh, they have had some student versions of, of these, of these things. I'm not sure where they, where those sit right now. Um, but you know, a lot of stuff came out. There was a lot of, uh, I will admit that I, I don't know what impact, you know, what we did at pixel core had, but there were two things that we pushed really, really hard with all these manufacturers when we were partnered with them, because we were partnering with all these manufacturers at the time. And we were like, a, there has to be a free version or a very inexpensive version for, um, beginner users, people are pirating your software because they can't get a hold of the real thing and they can't train. And that's actually affecting the supply of artists for your production companies that are buying it from you. So you got to figure that out. Number two um, was that you should do a subscription service so people can pay for it. So we were the very first subscription services to, but what we did is we said, you pay 50 bucks a month for Pixel Core. And what you got was obviously all the community tools, but you also got um, all of the, you got access to Commotion and Softimage and Cinema 4D and Rotos, you know, um, and a whole, all the RealViz products and all, a whole bunch of, like, it was like $50,000 worth of software for 50 bucks a month. And I said, you know, that's what people want to do is pay subscription. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said that so loud. Um, anyway, so, um, but I was the one driving the industry to, to go to a subscription model, but I wanted one subscription, like one that, you know, like a cable, I really describe it as a cable, like cable, like you just pay, a, you get a lot of people paying a little bit of money and you're making more money overall by doing it rather than charging them individually. And it makes it less expensive for starter people to get into it and everything else. So a lot of the early education versions really came out during Pixacore. And I don't know if it was in response, but th th there was a lot that we were doing with them at the time. And then, and then um, we saw education versions come out. I think a lot of them were pushed out for just setting up subscription services. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and I might point out the JavaScript versions that run in browsers are nice because they're portable. They'll run on any machine uh, that you know supports the browser, JavaScript, and uh, and it's portable. It stores your all your work in the cloud, so you can you know if you have a whole lot of computers and you want to move from iPad to uh, your Mac or to a PC or Windows. Uh, it's uniform across all the versions, yeah. the ones that run in the browser. So that's an easy way to get started, an easy way to go and not have to worry about installing a huge program onto a PC and having the right hardware to interface with it for 3D graphics. Absolutely. Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana with a question, what is different about doing 3D for film or video uh, than for doing presentations or gaming? It's just the requirements, you know, so a lot of times presentations in gaming, oh, gaming has its own world. I mean, that's Unreal and, and Unity and other things like that in their own engines. And those are, and they're, 
those are three different things like video for film um, or, you know, you're worried about things like oversampling. You're worried about reflections. You're worried about, you know, uh, color spaces. You're worried about, uh, you know, matching frame rates. You're worried about, you know, integrating it with live action footage. You're worried about uh, character animation. All of these things are things that you think about in, in TV and film that you may not think about for presentations or motion graphics or other things like that. Um, and so, so that in presentations, you're trying to be, you know, you're trying to do oftentimes explanations, you know, so 3D animations that explain how something works. Um, in gaming, of course, you're dealing with budgeting for render time. So how many things can I do at 140 frames a second? Like it's not or 120, 144 frames a second or 120 frames a second or 90 frames a second. I, I got to know, like, what's my budget of polygons and RAM and, and you know, VRAM and all these other things that have to happen. So they're, they all have different flavors of what you're trying to kind of figure out as you go down that path. And some apps are better at it than others. And I, you know, I, there's a lot of other apps like there's a lot of great engineering stuff that's done with SolidWorks um, as well as uh, Rhino. Rhino is another one that does. A lot of people that I know that do 3D printing like to use Rhino for a lot of things that they model. Um, next question. Next one in from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. How much do people rely on the physics built into the apps over just knowing how things should move? You try to use physics as often as you can because it's really, really hard to explicitly an animate all the things that happen in a body or, or things like that. When things start to move forward, like what they do a lot of times, you know, they're calculating a lot of things underneath it. So if you see like a dinosaur walking or whatever, you'll notice that the new ones in the new Jurassic Parks look a lot better than the original ones. And part of that was they started calculating things like building the muscles and then building the skin over the muscles and then building the the weight into those things and then calculating having to calculate how the skin goes over the muscles and moves through it and how and then again even things like fur you know fur and hair and everything else you can't animate that um, you you need it to just do its thing you know to to make that actually happen and so so as you start to you know physics and then as you start to drop a bunch of things or blow things up the, to animate all of that by hand not only would it take your entire lifetime, but it would also, um, it, it, it will also not look as good because, you know, it's, it's kind of like you, it, what you, what is actually happening is way more complicated than what you are consciously aware of. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah. Like, uh, like I said, if you, if you're going to blow something up and you got to calculate how each little piece is going to react with the, uh, the rest of its environment, bounce off things and come to rest, you know, that, that would take you years to calculate that. Another thing is to look into is inverse kinematics, which is uh, if you're moving people or things that have skeletons in them, you you can move just the hand, for example, to where you want the hand to end up, and it will calculate where the arm, all the parts of the arm need to be to move from point A to point B when it's just calculating where the hand wants to be. So that that saves you a lot of time. Inverse kinematics, if your 3D software can handle that, uh, especially if you're moving, you know, quadrupeds or uh, uh, people with, you know, octopuses, things with yeah. lots of arms. And a lot of times we build it. IK and FK rigs, so forward kinematics and inverse kinematics all at the same time. So we can, I can explicitly move it or I can set it as a target or a little bit of, you know, you can do oftentimes do a little bit of both. Um, and so, um, so those are, those are definitely like the, 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 you want the 3D system, the more the 3D system can um, uh, get you away from having to think about those things, the more you can be thinking about how to be creative. So a lot of times, like for instance, when you really look at high-end animators, they have kind of a, a, a abstracted set of controls that they're able to just kind of grab onto to kind of animate all the things. And a lot of it, then they work with the riggers to give them exactly what they want and how they want it to work. Like we had 
it was funny. The uh, in dailies, one of the funnier, one of the more enjoyable things about Star Wars Episode One was Jar Jar's ears because those were simulations. So the the ears were simulations with some controls, um, and, uh, and the simulation didn't always work. And so Jar Jar's ears would suddenly like fly out, like they'd stick up, they'd start you know going all over the place because the, the physics simulator hadn't, hadn't quite figured out what to do there. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I remember uh, in the ancient days of 3D, back in the days of electric image, what was that, Mr. or whatever it was, you used Mr. to explode Nitro. thing? Yeah, Mr. Pardon Nitro me? was written. Mr. Nitro, right. Mr. Nitro, um, uh, uh, Mr. Nitro was written for the to do the explosion in Terminator 2 where she sees the, the, nuke, the nuke go off in L.A. or whatever, and she's against the fence or whatever. All the, the destruction of that is all Mr. Nitro, and it was written for that, um, and... I actually built, um, I was working on a product that I was going to call, I mean, I really was into Mr. Nitro. I did a lot with it. And um, I learned how to do all kinds of crazy stuff with it and everything else. And But what I did is I, every night, I was, I was at the time I was working, I was, a, I was doing legal animation of all things. And, and I, but I had a whole bunch of computers. And so I would run these Mr. Nitro simulations. Um, and I would do, and I would just change, I had this, this spreadsheet and I change one thing five different times and another thing i had this huge thing where i changed all these things and i rendered 500 animations over about a month and a half or two months and i was going to call and the, what i wanted to do is build an interface where you just push the button it would instantly show you how that changes the like you can move the slider and because when you see it all you understand how it was thinking i understood by the end i understood exactly how Mark had written it. So Mark Granger wrote Mr. Nitro. And so Mark and I would talk about it. I'd be like, so this is the center of axis and this is the velocity of that and this is the movement of that. And so we would talk about it. So I understood what every app did, but I that took that, you know, hundreds and hundreds of renders to understand it. And I wanted to make it instant because you could you could then understand how it worked. I was going to call it the blasters handbook. But the um anyway, but uh, never never I got all the animations done. I never got the interface done. Uh, next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh PA asks what is a good starting point for building custom graphics for lower thirds and other broadcast graphics? Go ahead, Mitchell. Um, if they're sort of more 2D than they are 3D, uh, there's a thing called New Blue. Um, our friend uh, SPX, and uh, believe it or not, the old granddad himself, After Effects, will do it fine. Yeah, if you're if you're looking at the three at representing the 3D graphics that are there, then you know really I would if you're doing any kind of motion graphics, I would really think about Cinema 4D just because that's what it's built for. Um, there's a lot in it and it's pretty deep, um, and so I would really strongly consider you know think about that. The um, uh, what they're being done on is a mixture. Of, I mean, typically of Chiron and and uh, I mean for the for the ones that we see on Thursday night football or Monday or Sunday night football, I believe those are a mixture. I mean. Someone's going to probably correct me in Discord, but um, uh, I believe there's a mixture of Chiron and VizRT are the two that are being used for, um, you know, for the for that. It's a mixture of those two that that make it work. And VizRT is the big one. I mean, like that's the one. I mean, oh, Chiron's pretty big too. But I know that I had a, um, a friend of mine built a uh, thing called Reality Check that they did. They now, I think, all they do is VizRT. <laughs> what they used to do motion graphics for Fox, and they built all the VizRT systems, and it was it's pretty profound. What what because it, it's grabbing real time data. I will say, and I don't know how we're going to implement this, but I was really, I've been watching a lot of the graphics. The best way to learn graphics is exactly the way I did it, which is that I took something that I liked and I reproduced it to the pixel. And I just did that as my exercise. When I wasn't busy, when I wasn't doing enough, you know, working, I would spend a couple hours a day just tearing, tearing apart. A, a, you'd be surprised. Like you think, oh, that's a simple lower third. Okay. 
build it. <laughs> like build that lower third and see how it looks like. I will tell you that um, when I, I, I started breaking down in my head, like Thursday night football, I started breaking down in my head that lower third about what it's doing. And I realized it would probably take me full time, three months to build that to build that lower third. And that's without the dependencies. That's just to do, to go through the motions of what it's doing. It would take forever. I mean, it is a incredibly intense, um, but you could go to simple ones, go to college games and <laughs> do something and take theirs instead to start with. But but it, 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 you could do a whole college course on just like the graphics for most of these uh, football games. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Uh, you, you said a lot of what I was gonna say is BizRT, top, they're, they're at the top. Yeah. Uh, right below that, though, is expression, at least in the college market, uh, for sure. And, and those that can't afford VizRT by yeah. expression, it's kind of how it's basically told. Uh, Chiron is non-existent except in news almost now. In the sports world, we don't see it on trucks, period. Yeah, the, the And there's uh, a lot of specially built systems, that, but yeah. Chiron's not one. It's funny. I, I I do agree with you. Expression is really powerful, and and I haven't had the funny thing about expression for me was that I requested it for years as a I wanted a test license so that we could figure out how to integrate it with shows, and Ross wouldn't send me one, and so then I just then it just ceased to exist for me. Like I was just like I'm just I, I was so frustrated that I could because I get anything else except for expression, and then I just so then I just stopped thinking about expression because I was I was frustrated that I couldn't get a demo copy. Like I was like I don't care if you put a paint something over it. I just want to be able to play with it so I can figure out if, if this is what we need to use. And and I felt like the, the business model was so backwards that I just was angry and wouldn't use any of their products. <laughs> so, well, for but, the longest time, the, the Chiron was the same way. You, you could barely yeah. get a, a demo of that, but Ross mm -hmm. was really bad about it. Yeah. Uh, but VizRT is, I mean, it's, but the, it's but I will technical. Say, you we, really have to yeah, understand yeah. 3D to get it to work. And, and we do get into a lot. We, we do do a fair number of shows where we bring raw expressions. Expressions is probably at the level below where we do the, where we see VizRT, where we, where we're working, um, we, we use expression, we bring expression artists in a lot to do those kinds of things. And it's a really effective package. Um, next question. And it might be our last year, Neil Avalido from Boca Raton, Florida asks, may you explain more about the model creation and rigging? What's the best way to start animating tools, libraries, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is, again, you have to decide what you want to do with it. Um, I will say as an all-around package, if you're doing for free or if you're really under budget and you want an all-around package, Blender is a great one. If you are doing it and you think you're going to grow into something, I would really start with Cinema 4D. It's going to give you all of the tools that you that you want to do there. And so, and we're going to be doing more with, with Maxon. We've been talking to them about that. I'm bringing some folks on and working on some challenges together. And um, the new countdown clocks that I'm working on are in cinema. So, um, so I, I'm, um, I, I've got pieces of them that I'll show you soon. Um, anyway, so, so I think that that is, um, but that's where I'd, I'd look at those. Model creation is hard. I would stick with animation, texturing, lighting first. Like get that figured out. You can download lots of models. You can buy models. You can do a lot of other things. You will bog down in building 3D models if you get started there, um, you know, because it's, and it, if you really have to understand it and it's something that's very powerful, but it's the last thing I usually teach people how to do because it just takes so much time. No, understanding how to get, do the basic modeling is good. Understanding subdivision services is good. You can kind of hack things out, but start to build precision models is, it's a real skill set that takes quite some time to get good at. Well, there you go. Um, uh, thanks you so much to the uh, producers for all those great questions. And, uh, Throw those questions in early when you can. A lot of times I think that the producers um, react to when we start talking about something and throw all those questions in. But 
um, just note that that I react to how many questions, like if I look at a second hour, I react to how much we have to talk and what we have to do based on how many questions are stacking up. <laughs> so, so um, you know, to, to kind of manage that time. So, um, so throw those questions in early for the second hour if you can. Um, great questions though, great questions on it. I, now I feel like I should have started earlier on that, but I, we had so many questions from the first hour. So we're, and we're kind of being a little bit more relaxed right now as we do the transition. Great questions. Thank you so much for that. And great, uh, thank you to the panelists. We can't do this without you. It was a great conversation today. I think we had... We went, we went to lots of places <laughs> and lots of good discussion here, uh, as we often do. But it was a really, really good good panel today. Um, and thanks to the incredible team on the back end uh, that makes this happen, that has made this transition so smooth, um, and that makes this happen every single day, seven days a week. Uh, you're going to see more change uh, in what we're doing than we've ever had before um, as we experiment with cloud production, Zoom production, you know, physical uh, productions. All of those things are kind of moving as we as we kind of work on that. So um, so stay tuned uh, for seeing more of that. And it's just an incredible the team that puts this together, manages it, programs it, all those other bits and pieces. Quick reminder that at noon today, Pacific Standard Time, three p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time, we have the uh, workshop. This is if you're interested in being on the panel, if you're interested in being a host or a reader, this is a great place to go. Um, and so Mitch and Josh are putting those together. And, um, and it's a great, so that's a great place to get started if you're, if you have questions about that and you can find out more in the emails that go out. And, um, yeah, there we go. We traveled, uh, 105,000 miles. It's 168,000 kilometers and that is 831 million, million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. And those are 3D bananas. Millions, millions of bananas. Ticking and peering away in the cosmos. Mm -hmm. But this is the imperial banana. You got to have it be plastic because otherwise it keeps on changing size. You know, the problem with bananas, you let them stay, sit out and they, they're no longer the same size. And, and, and then they're banana bread. One kind of variety of bananas that are left and they're worried that if uh, they get a blight, they might lose them all. And we'll, we'll be, we'll, we'll be just, just having plantains and we'll tell our kids, I remember when these used to be sweet. <laughs> Now we just cook them on the grill. All right. Happy trails. See you, bye. <laughs>